0: Hello and welcome to the Back Page of video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, off air I just asked you, how's it going? And you said, I've not been doing much, I've been reading books. Anything more you'd like to add now that we're on air recording this? Really, that is the, the long <laughs> and short of it.
1: I've been signed up to Goodreads, the, the website, oh, yeah. for ages. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll go in there and, and as just a useful way of recording exactly what I've... What I've read in a year, because I keep forgetting. But they also have this like inbuilt mechanic where you can set a target for the year, and it kind of like turns it into a bit of like an achievement system. And for some reason, it has, well, it, you know, not for some reason. It's designed to tap into the gamer part of your brain and compel you to read loads. And I find myself just reading every spare moment I have, just to try and make my stupid little number on good reads go up. Which isn't a healthy way to engage with any media, but there you go. Yeah,
0: it's sort of like you're going for the Japanese crime fiction platinum, aren't you? You're like uh, going for that, a thousand G on a Japanese crime fiction.
1: I've read a couple of graphic novels for our upcoming Patreon episode, and they were very quick compared to a regular book. But you can put graphic novels on there, and I was like, does this count? Is this cheating? Am I, like, artificially inflating my book count by putting... Uh, these graphic novels on there I, mean, I have put them on there because i wanted to see the number go up i don't know if if you have a a take on that <laughs> uh
0: well to be honest one of the reasons i love reading graphic novels is because you can ingest an entire story in such a short space of time right you know that's like part of the appeal but i find services like goodreads or Letterbox really stressful because what i really want to do is I, I really need those services to document my entire life to date and i'm not prepared to do the legwork in to go to go in like backdate every film I've seen and every book I've read and so yeah. I don't like the idea of starting anew now and it looking like I haven't watched or read all these other things. So I just I just think rather than like pour a load of time into it that will give very little back, I've just like given up on them entirely really. Um mm. so yeah, yeah.
1: And part of my brain thinks if I can get a decent foothold on Goodreads, whatever that means, um, <laughs> or I can, or I can use a, a, a more active Goodreads presence to try and get early access to review copies of Japanese crime novels. See if I can somehow set myself up as a, a Japanese crime novel influencer, because um, yeah. I feel like I could be a great, I am a great cheerleader for it, um, yeah. but I feel like I could be one in a more official capacity if I had. Early access to cool books. You need to get on BookTok, my friend. You need to be on there, putting the work in. That's the thing. I can't. I just can't do that. I'm no good at taking photos um of books that like it, they'd be badly lit and you'd be able to just see the shadow of my phone over the cover and no one would like that and on book talk I think you have to be like a gorgeous teenager to be able to talk and build an audience about these things because right. that seems it seems to be like a lot of the person not a lot of the book from my very cursory glance
0: <laughs> yeah I think it said cursed glance then like oh, the no. that's um yeah I I it's uh it's funny because someone the other day said to me, Oh, yeah, now a lot of books get um, signed off the back of the fact that they could be big on book talk. Book talk's a big factor now. And I was like, Oh, okay, every creative industry's fucked then. Good. And then I just sort of like <laughs> stopped thinking about it because it's too depressing um but uh yeah four minutes into the podcast i realise and now uh, all we've been doing is talking about books but uh yeah, it's nice to hear you talk about these things and a good little ad for the um, graphic novels xxl episode coming to patreon <laughs> matthew um patreon.com slash backpage pod where we also did uh baroque rockstar open world games ranked this month in a two and a half mm-hmm. hour pod that was good the advert is over this podcast best games of 2014 so Matthew it's been about half a year since we've done one of these uh kind of game of the year episodes where we look back into the past they are always immensely popular the 2013 episode that we did last July I think it was was one of our five biggest podcasts of the year um like five most popular they're always popular people like these are kind of like I guess like a time capsule of what was going on at the time we have some reflections on what was in the news and then we also have our our two top 10 lists of our favorite games from the year so obviously, quite a nice overview um Hmm. so i suppose suppose our starting point matthew do you think 2014 was a good year for video games looking back
1: not maybe like a a a year chocker with like absolute masterpieces maybe not a, a golden year but i found it quite hard to make my top 10 uh, like there was lots of stuff that could have gone in there. A pretty good Nintendo year. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there, and you begin to see next gen at the time PS4 and Xbox One warming up a little bit more. I think at the time I had a lot of turmoil in my like personal and work life, and just the world. It's the world in general. In, in the gaming world in general, was a was a little bit of a shit show in 2014. So maybe not a year. I, I looked back on fondly before sitting down to kind of map it all out and going, well, actually, put all the all the dog shit stuff aside. And,
0: you know, I played some pretty good games. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I sort of, like, I had about 15 games that were eligible for my top 10, you know? Okay. Um, and so it wasn't massively hard to whittle them down. I think if you went outside that 15, the list got pretty thin pretty quickly. Okay. Um, it's not like, I don't think there were, like, 40 Game of the Year contenders. I did uh, think there were no. probably 20 in total, like, you know... There were actual games of note you know um, and so and obviously like this is the uh, second year um, of the well it's the first full year of the um, what was then the next gen consoles PS4 and Xbox one so you always get that steady start I think with them um, with the new console generations and this very much represented that but it also invoked like, you know, a pretty serious new series that would change the sort of like landscape of games. It changed the way that developers were trying to make games, I would argue, for the for the worse. Uh, Mm -hmm. We'll get into that, I think. Um, But yes, that was that was what was interesting here is that the identity of this generation of um of games was being forged in sort of real time. Um, But I think 2015 by comparison when we get to that year Um, Is an absolute fucking banner year compared to this. This is still a great year, though, and lots of interesting things to talk about. Mm. So, um, yeah, I agree with all of that. Right down to the fuck show stuff, um, that was, uh, yeah, I I reflect on that, obviously, like, yeah, it's not a great time. Um, But it was also, there were, like, wider industry things happening, and then also things closer to home, I suppose, happening in media that were that i remember you know making this a bumpy year i suppose mm. um so yeah i'm sure we'll get into that matthew what do you think is different about games at this point in time compared to now uh looking back at what was released what what stands out to you as like trends that were different or the types of games being released were different What what's different about this
1: where, where we are like now and where we were then is actually quite similar in the overarching cycle for much of the 360 ps3 generation the dominating trend had basically been the incredible rise of multiplayer and the necessity of multiplayer and that was the trend that sounds really broad going your game had to have a multiplayer mode but this was the era where basically call of duty modern warfare turned turned us into us into a sort of multiplayer people and you know every game sort of started following suit and we were obviously on like the eve of Of the next dominating trend, games as service, and I would say, like, if you compare that to now, like we're probably at the tail end for that trend, or at least the honeymoon period of games as service is over. And I definitely, like, last year, looking at games this year, you you are still thinking, like, what is the next big thing going to be? And I guess that's what links this period and then, like, they're both periods of like what next? What happens next? Because this thing is kind of played out. There there are some more granular differences. I think if you compare then and now, like PlayStation go into PS5 an awful lot stronger than they went into PS4. Xbox weirdly managed to fuck both periods, I think, which is pretty amazing. Um, and yeah, and then <laughs> Nintendo was just, I mean seemed like in a very dark place i will add this is a period tied to the demise of o&m and nintendo print media in the uk so you know in my head it was like well this is just this is the end for this but <laughs> th- those are sort of my broad
0: observations yeah i think i agree with that uh, maybe i should use that as a springboard actually because we have we like you say the tail end of games as a service right we are still seeing games that have that when i suppose they started production or pre-production they looked at the success of destiny the game was sort of like tiptoeing around here and said we need one of those um and i'm curious like so here's my question was destiny a net gain for games matthew because i don't think it was now that's not to say i think destiny itself is bad but i think that like if you compare the sort of trend cycle of games as service kind of games buy lots of cosmetics buy season passes all this sort of thing ongoing schemes is that compared to something like the rise of open world games that happened after gta the thing that was obvious in how they were presented was just the how obvious it was to the consumer that they're about money you know it's mm-hmm. like weird this week like this week actually like um this feels like a sign of the times a bit is that marvel's avengers is closing down and they had this like cosmetic store with a few good skins that they sold for um for real money, and that was you had to spend real money to get the skins now you got the the entire base game and all of the content including d l c for you know as part of the the base purchase price, which is you know that was good about that game, but like the idea of a of a game that's got like a single player mode shutting down and like there being this store element that didn't take off and then the game itself not taking off, and the whole thing feeling like. It sort of walked away in defeat. That's just a really weird byproduct of Destiny this year in 2014 <laughs> right. arriving on this like <laughs> massive wave of hype. Um, right down to you know Suicide Squad reportedly having some Battle Pass thing, and then people mm. talking about you know that being a games as service thing. I can't help but look at the history of these games and think they didn't yield any classics, and Destiny did that really. Um, Destiny's success did that, and we. we we end up with loads of them, and I, I don't see—I don't personally think they were good for games. Like I think mm. they were bad for games ultimately, um, because they just warped the thinking. Now, that's not like game designers' fault, but I could see why executives would <laughs> would look at Destiny and be like, "We need our own Destiny," and that's why this happened. But I don't know, man. I—I I, I think it's got a lot to answer for. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah,
1: no, that's when you when you put it like that. Yeah, that seems super clear. It's kind of a two pronged attack in that you have. Like games as service, also Battle Royale, of which on the Venn diagram there's a lot of crossover in terms of like behavior, but definitely, like, you know, the period we're about to enter after 2014 begins to shift into this almost like a game as a lifestyle, as opposed to like you liking lots of games, you play something individually. It's quite hard to talk about as a games journal because that's a job that doesn't really allow you to truly like engage and lose yourself in just one thing even if you wanted to that's what i found anyway i know it's slightly morphed now online you know you have so many staff on certain websites that you can have a beat and basically live inside one game and that is like your your whole deal And i get that but for a more jobbing games writer or freelancer that doesn't speak to me at all i imagine the people who have just played Destiny 2 every night for the last five years or whatever, or Division, or, you know, a collectible card game or whatever, you know, would probably speak to, like, losing themselves in the drama of the kind of, you know, the, the granular changes seemed very exciting to them. Maybe it rewired their brains so those granular changes could seem exciting. And a lot of them will vouch for the community aspect as well. You know, the friends we have that play Destiny, you know, I associate it with playing with a group of people who love Destiny, rather than like it's just Destiny by itself that speaks to them, so it fucks with a lot of people and it puts it puts the emphasis on different parts of games, which people then have to kind of like, you know, a lot of designs sort of suffer to
0: support it. Yeah, definitely, that's a good way of putting it.
1: But it sort of it does sort of feel like it's ending,
0: or it feels like people are like, nah, fuck that. I will emphasize what I say as well, which that is not me saying that Destiny itself is bad. Like, I think Destiny ultimately is like. Has ups and downs, but is a great shooter, and you know has had a continued life because it is legitimately good. So you know the shooting feels great, and some of the content is good. Some of it is grueling. Um, some of the content is excellent. I like the raids, which I've discussed before on the um, mm. XL episode on bosses. That was like a, a real highlight doing those. And um, yeah, it's not that's not to like diss Destiny itself, but I think that like it's the response to Destiny. It was what what happened this year. Like I that I had a real problem with at the time is people including peers were willing destiny to be good even when it wasn't which it wasn't in 2014 destiny it had like a just an okay campaign and then um you know then two expansions came out that i don't think they set the world on fire it was it wasn't until 2015 when the taken king came out which had a great campaign um and a load more kind of like nathan fillion um which the which it improved it massively like um new sort of subclass and just really really good repeatable activities destiny became good in year two but i think they kind of they were like well destiny's my game even before destiny was good and that really bothered me at the time i just thought it has to earn it like it can't just arrive on a wave of hype in a Paul McCartney song and be like, <laughs> here I am. Here's like, yeah, here's the next big thing. I'm fucking Dinklebot saying <laughs> that wizard came
1: from the moon. <laughs>
0: yeah. And like, it, it, but that's, that was all it had to me when it arrived. I thought yeah. it's just, it's just flat fiction that I'm not interested in. Beautifully, um, you know, beautiful art, art direction and like wonderful character designs and stuff. But... You know, not even as compelling as Halo to me as a universe, um, and like with a campaign that's nowhere near as good as the best um, campaigns that Bungie had made in the Halo series. And like, mm. I, the fact that people were willing it into being good just really bothered me. I just thought, if this thing wasn't on PS4, if this wasn't so closely tied to PS4, would you care about this as much? Like, but yeah. that is partly it, right? Is that yeah. you know,
1: that th- there's a lack of there's a lack of anything else like massive to maybe yeah. like eat up your time, and so. You know, people maybe on a professional level, like like they're willing it to be big because you just want to hit. You know, it's like whenever you get a dry patch in AAA games you know, websites get kind of desperate and they're all kind of like, well, when the next Rockstar game comes, we'll be back in business, boys. Um, so I can sort of understand. It had a huge push. Like, I was on O&M, but I I still, for some reason, ended up going to a Destiny launch thing and being given a copy of Destiny at the launch party in London and being like, right. why am I here? Like, this doesn't benefit <laughs> you
0: at all. Yeah, didn't bring Destiny to Wii U, did they? Uh, what a no. shame. Yeah, it's like, that's again, like, it's the... It's, I think it's just more the response to it than the game itself. Like it's just the the fact that people are willing it to be like this massive thing, and then, you know, you know in the in the kind of world itself, because like it was, you know, part of the PS4 reveal in 2013. Um, as we'll get to in a second, it was like the first thing they kick off with in the 2014 conference. It was like, you know, it was in, it was tied inexorably to this console that was already massive that had already won the generation from the starting line, and so. Yeah destiny wasn't an exclusive but it was treated like it was an exclusive and so that sort of like just powered it to this level of like instant success that i don't entirely think was like warranted Mm -hmm. in 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 its form at that time i think destiny took time to reach its full potential but i Mm -hmm. found it very strange that people were just like well destiny is my game now and i was like (laughs) well it's not my game, but I wish it, you well. Yeah. Um, it would become my game in a, in a worldwide pandemic. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. where was
1: the where was the goodwill for Titanfall, the good multiplayer shooter of twenty
0: fourteen? Well, that's interesting. I was. I mean, I was going to say this for spoiler alert an entry in my list, but this felt like the end of the you know the the type of multiplayer shooter that call of duty kicked off you know what i mean like the Mm. the sort of like the amount of sort of cod rivals that came out obviously this is made by the creators of call of duty so there was you know it was it was a a a fair few levels higher than a lot of the clones that followed in its wake but this felt like the rewiring of people from like you buy a 40 pound box game it's got a bunch of maps in it and then maybe you'll buy another map pack that's got a few more maps in it this feels like it ended here when destiny became huge and Titanfall did not. Now, if you switch those and Destiny was on Xbox and Titanfall was on PS4 and it got the same level of prominence that Destiny did while tied to PS4, would we be in a reality where Titanfall became huge, Matthew? What do you reckon to that? Oh, and I don't think like the appetite was
1: completely over for these shooters because, lest we forget, this is the year Nintendo announced Splatoon, which, <laughs> yeah, true, which true. bizarrely yeah. makes quite impressive inroads when it eventually releases 2015 on wii u like especially in japan it was like the multiplayer shooter that worked in japan was the kind of narrative around it and that's obviously daft and bears no uh, relevance on (laughs) destiny or Titanfall. Um, i enjoyed it i enjoyed it yeah thanks i i definitely think people weren't ready for a purely multiplayer shooter you know i i remember myself feeling at the time like no single player campaign in, in Titanfall One. That feels a bit. That feels a bit stingy. Mm. Given that Call of Duty still was giving you the single player campaign, maybe that has an impact. I think also just Xbox One not being hugely desirable and a bit of a slow
0: starter, I and mean, it definitely plays a part. It would be intriguing to see what Titanfall One, how that had fared if it did have a, a, you know a campaign on the same level as that Titanfall Two campaign, which is mm. obviously considered one of the best um, first person shooter campaigns of the last well yeah the last 10 years um Mm. so yeah like it's um you know that's that is why i asked the question because i think titanfall did have momentum behind it but it did arrive on a console that was struggling at the time whereas yeah i suppose like destiny had this whole kind of like soft co-op thing where you 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 did play with other people but you weren't forced into playing with other people and you could play competitively but it wasn't just about playing competitively so maybe that flexibility did it some favors as well Mm. so okay just to sort of switch track um a little bit matthew I, i suppose like It is good to, we we do like to reflect a bit on what was going on with us, uh, sort of like, you know, on the print media side, or whatever, at this time when we do these episodes, so, what was going on with you personally in 2014?
1: I had a horrible year. Right. Chandra left O&M in December of 2013, so I became outright editor of O&M which is always what I'd hoped was going to happen. You know, I'd edited a couple of issues of Nintendo Gamer by myself and then basically went back to being a deputy editor. I was called associate editor on official Nintendo. though. Yep. finally in charge of o and I was really excited and I had a really, really bad start. It's not a story I can tell in full just because uh, some of the people involved and also it's just embarrassing and remains a point of personal shame. But the last issue that we sent with Chandra's editor, broken NDA on something. And so I inherited this shit show, which actually kind of tainted my relationship with Nintendo and Future. Like, A, it wasn't my mistake, which I was really annoyed about. I wasn't in charge of the mag that, that that issue sent. And... B, it was explained to me in, like, no uncertain terms. This is going to sound super obvious, but our relationship with Nintendo is just much more important than our relationship with you. Which, you know, hearing that from, like, your publisher or whatever is, like, pretty rough. And, yeah, and and it, like, sort of broke my heart a little bit and kind of killed, like, almost sort of killed my love for the whole thing instantly. I thought it was really unfair it was just really embarrassing if I had more backbone I would have walked away but then none of this would have happened afterwards you know we wouldn't be here doing this podcast now (laughs) you know I started looking for other jobs because I was like well I can't stay here doing this Um, (laughs) yeah it was it was pretty bad over I'll tell you what it was over this is the dumbest motherfucking thing we said Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze had a time trial mode. Wow. That's what kicked this all off. The dumbest Who fucking thing. Who gives a fuck about that? Uh, no one gives a fuck. What no a No one of gives time a fuck. Energy. No one noticed. So dumb. But, um, yeah, maybe, like, when we've been doing this podcast, like for 10 years <laughs> I can tell because the full, the full version of it is like pretty rough so that that wasn't good um, you know and so I, you know I was trying to kind of battle that and, and still kind of maintain my excitement work wise I kind of had what I sort of wanted in that I was in charge you know we had Joe Scribbs on the team, who was absolutely brilliant. I loved working with Joe. We hired Kate Gray uh, as our staff writer, and like I finally had a team with just everyone was like a great writer, really funny. Like the actual like day to day in the office was really fun. Um, this coincided with just some like really great Nintendo games that kind of played into our strengths and. I had like a, a f- like a four month period. I felt like all my business with like future Nintendo aside, this is exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I did my Professor Layton versus Phoenix Wright cover. That should have been the warning bells that O and M was fucked. Uh, that they let me do that, <laughs> but I I didn't see that writing on the wall. Um, and then you know they, I, you know, one day I was basically brought into a meeting with my publisher, and, and they said, you know, O and M's, you know, going to be shutting down in. I can't remember how many issues. It wasn't like next month's the last one, but they were like, This you know, it certainly won't make it to the end of the year. So then I was like, shit, I've you know, this is really bad. Like we just brought like Kate on board. That seemed really unfair to kind of make someone relocate and, you know, offer them this great opportunity. So I was in a pretty dark place. But then something miraculous happened. Future basically went into like minor meltdown, decided to shut the London offices, which was terrible news for everyone except me. Um, because all yeah. of a sudden they had a they had a magazine they were moving to Bath official Xbox that didn't have an editor and i I went from an editor definitely on the way out because M closing to do you want to go to Bath and edit o x m with a new team in my mind, it was like a stay of execution in print media, which I wanted, and I got to go back to Bath and get out of fucking horrible London amazing <laughs> I really couldn't believe my luck and i I feel quite grimy saying that because. Obviously, at the time, this move like ruined loads of people's lives. Like the office was distraught. You know, CVG shut. All the OXM team you got made redundant because they didn't want to go to Bath. You know, the rest of the ONN team who didn't want to go to Bath were made redundant. They were just shrinking teams across the board. But here I am thinking. Well, I was doomed before this, and now, weirdly, this this terrible thing has kind of saved me. I went back to Bath, and Kate came to Bath as well as our staff writer on OXM. So that was cool because we got to carry on doing the work. And we took over this mag with like a whole new team. It was quite an unusual thing. I hadn't really seen it happen before. Like, no one working on OXM had worked on OXM before. You know, we had Alex Dale as our DEP Ed, um, Emma Davies as our prod Ed, and Rob Crossland as our. Uh, our editor they all came from a science mag that had been shut in this whole future reshuffle so yeah it was just how it ended in december i just couldn't have predicted in january like just a really really wild time for me
0: i was uh, so say the london office thing was a quite a huge event because like I, I joined in december 2013 um and there was that really weird future conference where an ads guy was talking about how he there was like a skiing trip for all these clients and then people were booing in the crowd at the ads guy. Like it was (laughs) like, it was a weird culture of like, I don't know. People were just quite honest about how they felt about the company while I was there. And that was like my first day that happened that we were in an auditorium and people were booing this ads guy. And I thought this is strange. Um, I remember there was like my first in my induction at future. There was a training guy who told me, he said like to the room, um i will never leave future and he was made redundant like three months later um (laughs) and he'd been there for like i think like two decades or something like it was a really weird time like future did it to survive and it worked um they had to they were like in massive debt and they had to like sort themselves out um but it was really brutal Mm. and like and a a bad a really cursed backdrop for like starting a new job in another Mm. city um, and I was panicking so much about losing my job that I went for this job in Barcelona, which I almost took and then just left after four months, PC gamer. Um, I'm glad I didn't cause that company would lay off loads of its own staff the next year. Um, and it seemed like Ooh. a bit of a dud job, to be honest. But I was just there thinking... What, could just you imagine fucking...
1: yourself living in Barcelona?
0: Does that seem unlikely to you? Do you not think I could make it? What do you reckon? I've never really seen you in land so far. Um, like, <laughs> hey, we went to France I, together. Like we went to Paris. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we went to Paris.
1: And you just laughed at me eating an onion pie. It doesn't really tell us a huge amount about what happened. And complained. And complained in a cold car park. <laughs> you um. complained a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's um, true. Yeah, I've got... Uh, you've got, like, Marcus Brody energy from that. <laughs> you remember that? That's in last crusade yeah, they're talking about marcus and they're like oh he's unstoppable why now he's already got the grail and it cuts to him walking along that platform going Does anyone speaking um, yeah kind of okay I, so.
0: I do but i do also love the idea of you selling yourself for some kind of like you oh know, no that's why <laughs> we're both marcus brody yeah i agree with you no i i would have found it probably quite lonely and intimidating truthfully um, but then like Bath wasn't great either. Like this was a year where I had a relationship sort of like break down and break down and then end. And it was like, it already got on for about a year and a half too long. And right. it was just like, that was bad to start a new job ab- amid the backdrop of that. And then also future booting loads of people selling brands like it was it was quite intense but like um, Tim uh, was really good throughout it he was like well they've just hired you and they're going to need an editor of PC Gamer in like six months so just relax it'll be fine Um, the problem is I never relax that's my problem as a human being Um, so that's that's tough also PC Gamer was like a bit of a pig to make um, because we took on making the us version of the mag this year um while the us team focused on making the website which was growing into a very a very huge thing mm. and it's now basically like the primary you know engine of, of uh, pc gamer that was only really spinning up at this time like it existed and it had staff but this was where like it was major investment time they moved him over onto PC gamer to run it and in from the us and sort of brought the uk and us teams together more but the mag was like we had like phenomenal, like truly amazing writers. Um, All of them were just really good, like Chris Thurston, Andy Kelly, Tom Senior, Phil Savage. Like they were all better writers than me. <laughs> right. Um, I Like I don't, you know, I, and I'm not saying that to like, you know, be self-deprecating. They were just fucking amazing. But like what the mag never had that I kind of really needed was it needed a reviews editor and it needed a features editor because it never had either of those. I just sort of ended up trying to man them myself and I really just needed to ask for help and didn't which was and that just killed me over and over again right the reviews had to be coordinated to go on the website at the same time um you know at the same time the embargo lifted which is another headache to think about when you're doing mag reviews because (sighs) when it's a mag you can get review code and it's just got to be in before your deadline but when it's like you know an embargo it's got to be done in short space of time edited then put on a website that was way too stressful to do on top of making a magazine truthfully mm. in retrospect it was too much but I did really I was really proud of working on PC Gamer and it was amazing to be around so many good writers it was great to like learn from Tony Ellis and um, the Prado was really good and John Strike who's just an amazing designer still on PC Gamer designed our logo um you mm. know like that's Someone who I have, I have imme- you know, immense um, sort of respect for his sort of creativity and what he was capable of and how much passion he had for the mag, like yeah, all of that stuff was really good. But it was um, I was just a bit I was just doing a bit too much, um, and there was other stuff as well. The worst thing about PC Gamer was <laughs> there was a free gift card every month that had like right. a code on it, and getting those codes in time for the deadline, which was two weeks before the mag went to press. Was just a fucking shit show every single month. And I hated it. And to, to be honest, that made me fall out of love with making the magazine more than anything else. The deadlines, fine. Like, you know, doing the review section and the feature section by myself, fine. I can do that. That did change when Phil moved on to the mag, actually. He was very good. But, um, when it was just me I was like fuck this gift card I hate this I'm stuck with it it's like a replacement (laughs) for the demo disc there's no budget for it I have to beg people for codes every month this is the fucking worst it's making the mag worse because I can't focus on the mag because I'm chasing this shit every month I hated it. It was the worst thing about running that mag. It stank, like it was mm. awful. And it's gone now. Good for the ed- good for them because it was terrible. It was a terrible <laughs> burden, <laughs> and it ma- and it made me hate the mag so much quicker than I would have done otherwise. So I loved everything else about that magazine, but that fucking gift card, <laughs> I despised it. So that was it. It was like a lot of escalating escalating things, really. And like yeah. that was quite a, just a rough backdrop, you know. It was it was just so sudden, you know. I think particularly the CVG
1: boys are still to this day. Like, very, very cross and sort of curse Futures' name, which they have absolutely every right to do. It's just a hectic time, you know. It, it, yeah, was, it, was, it was super messy. I mean, on, I would say on the plus side, it's the beginning of the the iconic Castle and Roberts friendship.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that starts like more in 2015 when there's like a weekend we go to the pub together. We go to the Cur de Lion, that little um, pub. Um, and I think I'm just redesigning Piece of Gamer so I'm in on a Saturday and you're in doing something else. Do you remember that?
1: yeah vaguely i'd still yeah. remember like because obviously we hadn't worked in the same office but when i was back in bath you know our desks were quite close to each other there was us with um was games Radio in between us they were yeah very yeah.
0: a couple of them would uh argue all the time and uh that was kind of like what i remember of that time after <laughs> I Was listening to those arguments yeah. uh, but um you know
1: we'd often be in late and you know, would, would share, you know, share our woes, you, you, you were um, a little bit up more highly strung, because I think for for the, definitely for the first stretch of OXM, I was still in this slightly weird kind of like, you know, I can't believe I'm still in games media place, because I, right. I really thought I was out, I like, I remember applying for jobs to, uh, one particular job to be like a um, copywriter for like, hallmark cards or something <laughs> like yeah. writing like the messages inside like that's where i thought my
0: life was gonna go isn't that basically what joseph gordon levitt's job was in 500 days of summer matthew We're you gonna go yeah. become that guy and fall in love with zoe deschanel was that like
1: <laughs> oh well you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was necessarily the dream obviously Catherine was still stuck in london was only coming down at weekends but i had a nice flat i lived on portney street in like a big proper like regency building i really loved i really loved my my little flat very weird memory of like the move was fast to bath like i didn't really have a huge amount of time between stopping at onm and starting oxm i can remember sitting in a completely empty flat but it did have my tv and an xbox one reviewing the dlc for watchdogs right (laughs) like before i had any furniture like that was what i did the weekend that i moved to bath because i needed to hit the ground running because i think we'd inherited like half an issue from john hicks and his team so we had like holes to fill so sitting in this furnitureless te- i think the tv was like on the ground and i was sitting cross-legged in front of it
0: playing a bit of watchdogs dlc i think i even finished watchdogs one so i had no fucking idea what was going on poultney street though means no uh no um, double glazing so it's a no from me dog oh it's um, yeah, it's, it's cold as shit really <laughs> really expensive heating because they were like storage
1: peters, so right like heating those rooms were really tough the other thing about that flat uh, it had a chandelier, um, right. which had about 24 light bulbs in it. And yeah. it became a huge burden buying light bulbs for this fucking chandelier. i really resented it by the end. Because <laughs> it'd be like, how many of these light bulbs can go out before this room is just too depressing. And I have to buy like, you know, 16 light bulbs to try and like brighten the place up. Yeah. Um, so I, it just, I, I wasn't made for fine living. <laughs> that's why I have some sympathy with the royal family Because you're like, it's tough
0: It's tough living in opulence All
1: Yeah, but they're, bulbs, not, they're not replacing
0: man. their own fucking bulbs, are they? There's like a, There'll be like head bulb guy who does that and we're, <laughs> Yeah, and but we're the spend, for it. the bulb spend is just vast <laughs> Let me tell you, I had one chandelier And
1: it like almost financially destroyed me
0: <laughs> Well again, we're paying for those bulbs So, you know, um, <laughs> anyway uh, Yeah, that's that's funny um, My flat was quite shit actually It was up the hill but um, it was very affordable it was like a it was like a studio and like i probably shouldn't have been living there after a certain point like after i became editor-in-chief it was it it looked like a i would say a section editor's flat and not an editor in chief's flat <laughs> it was they like should advertise them in those terms in bath because it would make more sense to like most of the people renting yeah that's it yeah that's um that would make more sense but yeah it was um it was like there was like it was brown walls and there was this weird transfer of like a map of the world on the on the wall very strange (laughs) and then like (laughs) then there was like when i got there there was like a really really moldy like bathroom mat in the bathroom that was like gave it this incredibly cursed vibe um and then i know a yorkshire terrier had been living there like not by itself to (laughs) to be clear (laughs) like uh, (laughs) that's how opulent bath is people's dogs have their own apartments But, like, it stank of this Yorkshire Terrier for about two years, I would say. Um, That was rough. Um, That is rough. (laughs) And like, the other thing is that the, the main guy, like the, the landlord, it's like whenever I asked for maintenance, <laughs> like to the estate agent, the owner of the flat just came around and tried to fix stuff himself, which was really bizarre. It's like, oh, <laughs> the guy who fixes the lock on my door is also my plumber. That was really strange. <laughs> um, so quite cursed vibe to that. I was really far up this hill. So um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't the fanciest, but it was like, it was a way that I could live where I could actually save a tiny bit of money, which was, I Ooh. never was able to do it, imagine, because I earned such a poor wage and living by myself was so so rough so yeah that was a good thing actually like um future paid way way more than imagine did for editors which was uh, a relief so that was good um so having some money that i could spend on fucking lego did make up for the um the stress of um <laughs> the day-to-day and it was very stressful so um i think that's enough recollection from us matthew should we move on to like what was going on in the news at the time fire through this quite quickly i think but every time we do these episodes we do like a recap of what was 83 three the c3 i would say after like the generation defining e3 from 2013 where sony really kicked microsoft while it was down that first xbox one reveal um was just like death basically for the entire generation really Mm -hmm. tough position to be in this year felt like microsoft went we just need to do something just lots of games and not mess up basically um and sony was just kind of like here's a bunch... Sony was just kind of like, oh, here's a bunch of stuff. We have, like, an actual, like, array of cool things. But I would say that, like, as you were hinting at, Matthew, this year isn't the year that the PS4, like, massive success and big exclusives really kick in. The games that come out this year from Sony actually feel like PS3 games to me. Like, Mm -hmm. they have that kind of profile. So three kicks off with destiny as i mentioned earlier they have the order 1886 they reveal bloodborne which would obviously be very exciting the next year um there was some kind of infamous dlc thing uh little big planet 3 dead island 2 that trailer with the dude jogging um that game is still not out <laughs> nine <laughs> years after uh after this trailer debuted amazing um but it's meant to it's meant to be out very soon though isn't it now that's um that's finally yeah. happening then there's a lot of like um sort of like indie stuff they make a lot of space for this early in the generation with like bro force hotline miami um there's let it die from grasshopper i don't know much about that game never played it but i know a few people got into it um kind of like i think it was a free-to-play thing wasn't it i don't really know um, yeah i think so abzu which was a cool underwater uh, game i can't remember if that came out this year but it didn't make my list in the end anyway um and the big thing was in the middle of it was the no man's sky trailer um i forgot that this is where that debuted that uh kind of immense depiction of like you know a planet with teeming with life um and flying over it in a spaceship then getting into a space battle going back onto a planet and then uh, sean murray came out and made this big pitch uh an interesting thing in retrospect because no man's sky launched in a very very rough state um and over the years has has transformed but i still don't think it entirely looks like it does in in this what was clearly just a prototype or whatever Mm. um do you remember that math that moment matthew the when that trailer dropped was that a big deal to you no not really i wasn't keeping like an
1: amazingly close eye on on playstation like because of all the aforementioned drama you know, I was kind of like lost a little bit in in O and M land. You know, this was a year of like having to very quickly kind of get up to speed with like what had been going on with Xbox, let alone PlayStation. I do remember the kind of big pitch here, and I don't think you could see the warning signs. Um, it, maybe that's too extreme a term, but for No Man's Sky, you nah. know, like like in hindsight, people th- you know say Sean Murray, you know, went a little bit more lenient with it, but um i don't know when that stuff properly
0: kicked off yeah i think it's like i think it is fair to say it does kind of kick off here um but how much you hold it against him is up to you i suppose like he was (laughs) trying to sell the game he was making and they lots of things can happen in game development where things don't work out they probably had to release it a certain time because they had a box copy out um they had a deal with sony like that Mm. was probably part of why it released when it did and then yeah they you know you can't argue with them putting like six years of work into you know dropping major updates and stuff, adding the multiplayer it never had that they sort of suggested it would then didn't have. Um that was the that was the biggie I remember, was the multiplayer element of it. Yeah. And that is that is fair criticism, I think. I think Mm. there is like a lot of the criticism was fair. But obviously it gets um it's sort of like caught in the wave of like vitriol that you just see on the internet towards game devs generally. So I'm always a bit like, well, yes there was a bit of molyneux to this truthfully but also um i'm over it and it doesn't matter let's move on uh it's fine um <laughs> yeah. um so yes uh other than that they had um, a solid chunk of ps vita action in this uh, this um show i forgot that the vita was still kind of going at the time but had assumed this sort of indie profile there were no longer big games coming to it really um an mgs5 uh phantom pain trailer that featured Nuclear by Mike Oldfield. I remember that trailer quite well. It wasn't as good is this as the one with
1: Skullface.
0: Um... Yes, I think it is. I think Skullface is in a few of the trailers. Okay. To be honest. but the the best MGS five trailer I think was the one that had garbage uh, in it. The not your kind of people. The one that was um, I think it was mostly from that hospital kind of prologue. I think it was released really right, the year yeah. before. But uh, yeah, and then um, but this one did have a lot of the plot stuff in it. You see Liquid Snake in it as a boy and all that that stuff. It, uh, quite a lot of story made it into it. Um, again, doesn't really tell you much about the game it's just a load of cutscenes edited together which is pete kojima yeah. <laughs> when really the cutscenes were the worst thing about the phantom pain so um yeah. yeah um it's a reasonably solid conference i put no pants shitting here that's true um it's slightly it's slightly better than all of the ps3 conferences were which are all kind of boring and a bit weird and corporate that's funny because you wrote in your notes, you wrote
1: Metal Gear Solid 5 trailer, and then reasonably solid, some boring bits, but no pant shitting. I thought that was about Metal Gear Solid 5. And I was thinking, <laughs> was there pant shitting in the final game? Like, <laughs> I do not remember that. But the I was horse, let the it horse go. shits. The horse shits, but not snake. The horse shits, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like so oh, yeah. it doesn't have that famous pant shitting mechanic that we all
0: <laughs> grew to know and love. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> And then, this, like, then it ends with the Arkham Knight gameplay which still looks so good. that but If yeah. someone showed a game that looks like this good now, I'd be like, wow, it looks so good. Yeah, it looks way um, better than Gotham Knights. Yeah, it's inexplicable. And then there's a, just one more thing at the end of it, which is Uncharted 4, Nathan Drake on an island. You hear a bit of him and Sully talking. Pretty rad, because that game would rule, but it was still two years away from being released. So um, super early. I can't remember where, what happened to the... I think the Amy Hedig stuff predates this, maybe. I can't remember. But that's like um a a, a, cha- a tale of... um game development i think needs to be told in full at some point is what happened to that version of the game mm. and what happened to amy hennick and all of that stuff because that's uh yep yeah, um still it's been documented but not documented enough in my opinion um mm. so microsoft e3 guess who isn't here matthew don matrick um <laughs> he's gone at this point it's um phil spencer on stage um they're gonna go big with forza and that's, that's fair enough forza's always been good for microsoft hasn't it? it's always been consistent forza 5 and forza horizon 2 i don't know if either of those games are in your list matthew i guess we'll see but uh yes um, evolve was there which was another one of these multiplayer things that happened this year they didn't quite take off um 4v1 <laughs> game um but i know i had a lot of fans you skipped um, your
1: very funny note about cod
0: <laughs> oh yeah a cod no one remembers apart from jeremy peel yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think this is advanced warfare i can't remember if this a- is kevin spacey cod Ah, yeah, that's good. Uh, I bet they're happy they did uh, did it this year and not in, like, 2017. That's, I think uh, that's this good.
1: was my first cover on LXM,
0: actually. Oh, okay. That's fair enough. Like, um, did you have to put Kevin Spacey on the cover? What was the sort of artwork for well, this it? This was pre-Kevin Spacey being, like, a known wrong Right, yeah. So... That, was like, that was, like, 2016 or something, wasn't it? Yeah, so this was back when it was, like,
1: cool that Kevin Spacey was
0: in the game. Yeah, that's good. I mean, if they... The thing is, if they'd have made it like a couple of years later, they'd have had to replace it with Christopher Plummer, um, which would have been like a, <laughs> <laughs> awkward and at great expense. A bit, a bit of a, a bit of a niche joke that, but um, you know what I meant, Matthew. I which like is it. What matters. Um, there's Assassin's Creed Unity with four players. I think we've established on previous pods that's actually a pretty good Assassin's Creed if you um, forget about the narrative of like uh, you know the rough launch that it had. Mm. Um, then they, uh, there's got Sunset Overdrive there, Fable Heroes. It does seem like they've got quite a lot of stuff, to be honest, superficially. Mm. And then there's like a really long bit with Project Spark, which Ooh. is like a game creation tool. Do you know what happened to that? I don't really know much about that. I think we did like a couple of half pages
1: on it. It was, just a, it was a real bust. It's sort of their little big planet, isn't it? But it's nowhere near as charming. It basically ma- lets you make a lot of very, very ropey games. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. The Dreams is a better version of this, isn't it? Like Dreams. Yeah, this. Yeah. Uh, it was just, yeah.
1: Just a whole lot of nothing really, Project Spark.
0: Yeah, and so you got that, and then you got um, quite a bad trailer for Dragon Age Inquisition, actually. I thought I found the tone of it quite off. Um, that was strange, very melodramatic. Ori and the Blind Forest is here, Matthew, which I know is a big favourite of yours. Mm-hmm. Um, Halo 5, of course, is here. And uh Inside is here. I didn't realise that had been in an Xbox conference, but I think it was quite closely tied to the ID Xbox thing for a while, wasn't it? Mm. Um and then yes, um Phantom Dust and Killer Instinct, beloved um revivals of old um games there.
1: Why That's the fuck were they remake Phantom Dust? That's so bizarre. That game's arse.
0: <laughs> uh it, was a, it was quite a strange bit of the show this. Uh, to be honest, it's reasonably consistent. Then there's a bit of the division which does look proper next gen. And I think like would look proper next gen when it came out, actually. It was like a nice looking thing. Scalebound is here revealed. Um obviously another doomed like that's the thing. Fable heroes and scale bound here. you got two doomed big Xbox games um, right. that <laughs> are like prominent in this <laughs> conference, which is a sign of like some of the issues that Microsoft would have. Um there's like uh yeah, and then finally it ends with Crackdown three and the multiplayer thing that never even came out, um, with all of the like um cloud based destruction stuff. Like, I don't know. It feels here like they're sort of str- they've stretched a bit, you know. Things that aren't ready are here to like make the future look more exciting than it would be. Um mm. because some of this stuff just wouldn't really amount to much. Any thoughts on that, Matthew, at the Xbox conference?
1: Again, coming to it like slightly late and working out how we're we gonna make a year of content out of this it was a little bit like what the hell are we going to put on the cover because a lot of these don't feel like they're going to particularly play well with people yeah um there's plenty of interesting stuff there and some games i really loved but um did they ever truly again work out their first party situation (laughs) like it's yet to sort of happen like maybe there'll be this like incredible burst of like a year where they release 10 first party whoppers the number of studios they now own you feel like they they should have to but um like so many of the studios they owned back then closed like within a year of this conference yeah. so you know it's um yeah it's kind of bleak
0: every now and then on the gaming uh, leaks and rumors subreddit which is like uh you know sort of hilariously like um sort of like feeble uh part of the internet in terms of like they'll any old stuff get, ends up on there gets upvoted and then the comments are full of people saying this is fucking bullshit and then like joking about the rumor itself it's actually like a weird addiction of mine to read that every <laughs> now and then every like every six months someone says scalebound is being revived right. like that is and i just don't see any world where that happens um yeah. scalebound, scalebound came out it was called bayonetta 3 we all played yeah well it, that's you know it I, mean. I think
1: what was good in scalebound was stripped and put into bayonetta 3 so
0: yeah exactly um so yes um what about nintendo matthew because I, I always leave it to you to recap what was going on with nintendo e3
1: yeah so this was their second year of not doing a big conference they actually i think turned it into quite a successful sort of uh suite of online only um events that their, their main you know the, the the main event or whatever they called it was. This was the year that um, they worked with Robot Chicken. It was full of lots of skits with like plus like stop motion animated Mario voiced by Seth Green, which is like powerfully 2014. Um, uh, you know weird intro to Smash Brothers with like Reggie and Iwata fighting in quite an elaborate like like minute long fight sequence that looks like The Matrix. Um, I think all of this was distraction tactics for the for the fact that they had like I think they only really announced like ten things in their whole. They had like no third party stuff at all in Oof, their showing. Um, it was all first party. I mean, they opened with the announcement of Me Fighter in Smash Brothers which is a bit, yikes. They explained Amiibo. There was Yoshi Woolly World, explained in a wool shop. That was the gimmick this year. People kind (laughs) of sitting in the place related to the game they were telling you about. Captain Toad Treasure Tracker, which I always thought was a little bit flimsy. It's like, do you remember that thing that was kind of a cute throwaway bit of 3D (laughs) World? What happens if we had a whole game of that and it's... Well, it's a little bit six out of ten, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't that on Switch now? Can't you play yeah, that on Switch? Yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah. And, like, what was cool about it was probably, like, the gamepad, like, touch stuff. I, I don't know. That, mm. that, that's. Um... As the you best would say, of... that's a no from me doll. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, well the best thing about it was just that like it was towed with a little backpack on. That was it. That was like the yeah. most most of the appeal. And the nice diorama levels were pretty
1: yeah, cool. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's that's fine, but like, I don't know, that trades heavily on like your love of Nintendo cute, and uh, you know, I like I like to have a bit of substance behind it. I thought that game was 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 kind of like nothing really. There was a Numa sitting in front of a screenshot of Breath of the Wild. Not a screenshot, a static camera of what looked to be like real, it just uh, in-engine, in Hyrule, shown for the first time. And it was just like, holy shit, look at that. You know, because he started off showing like the original NES at Zelda, going, this is what we've drawn inspiration from, and you were like, "Uh uh-oh, is this going to be shit? And then (laughs) he's like, ba-ba-da-da, and you're like, oh, yeah, that speaks for itself, like the wafting grass, the mountains in the distance, there was like a weird little um, hut and Lynx is sitting on a horse, and it's just clopping around, you're like, oh, that's going to be so good, and then it sort of transitions into the trailer where he fights one of those sort of uh, tentacled guardians, and that was really exciting, though, obviously. I think by the time we watched the c3 like O and days were like firmly numbered to like three issues so it's right. kind of like well that's an amazing thing we'll never get to cover that's gonna that's kind of blow um <laughs> there was pokemon ruby sapphire remakes you know eh? uh <laughs> bayonetta 2 looking uh, very flashy and fun bayonetta 1 with nintendo costumes Um, which, you know, looked kind of goofy if you're into sort of Bayonetta cosplay, if that's your thing. Um, (laughs) I won't judge you if it is. (laughs) There was uh, some people sitting inside a traditional Japanese house talking about Hyrule Warriors and about how exciting it would be to finally play as um, Bidna from Twilight Princess. And you're like, yeah, I'm on board with that. Kirby Rainbow Curse, which was... Sort of announced came out i think twenty fifteen it was like a sequel to power paintbrush that but made out of like plasticine and it was it was a bit yeah nothing. about Chronicle X, a big story trailer, which was the first time I, I worried maybe Chronicles X isn't going to be as good as we hoped. Because before that, they'd been showing like the mad open world and the characters and the kind of fiction seemed from this trailer to be very hard sci-fi, which it turned out to be. Uh, and I was a little bit like, hmm, is that really what I want from these people? Uh, they showed Mario Maker obviously very cool, went on to be very popular, and probably most importantly, Splatoon, um, which was the three young developers who we'd never seen in anything before. They were like a, a new creative team within Nintendo, um, sitting in an aquarium <laughs> uh, to fit in with their their weird little sort of motif of this E3. Introducing the world to, to Splatoon and doing a really good job of it, actually. You know, I think... The stuff they say in this presentation, like I still think, is at the heart of what makes Splatoon interesting. Like even some of the tactics and the way they talk about the ink, like I, th- I think they did a really, really good job. And they talk about this in even a Otaru Ask interview, or maybe the Splatoon Three interview that they did uh, earlier in the year on the Nintendo site, where they were talking about how important it was to, like, introduce this game to the world and how much time they put in, like... I think they, as game directors, like, personally edited the Splatoon 3 trailer and things like that. And actually, you watch it now, you're like, oh, this makes it look absolutely fantastic. And, Mm. you know, there was this huge, like, instant sort of buzz, excitement, you know, new Nintendo IP. I mean, you know, outside of ARMS, we haven't really had that again in the last 10 years. You know, it's, it's something to be sort of cherished. So, um... Yeah, that was cool. Ended with a, a reveal of Lady Palutena from Kid Icarus in Smash Brothers, which, you know, I love those <laughs> introduction trailers, but maybe not like the biggest note you could end on. Um, I'd have
0: ended with Breath of the Wild if it was me. Like, that's, you know, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, th- yeah. well it, uh, it
1: then actually had a weird little bit where Miyamoto was like, I'm going to show something on a stream later today. Uh, that I've been working on, and it was like hit those weird prototype games sort of themed around Star Fox.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uncle Slippy which, or whatever. Yeah, like... Uncle Slippy's Double Trouble, something like
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> when he showed them off, it felt like a very low-key reveal of Star Fox, because it was then on the Treehouse stream, which was something they introduced this year, which was like three solid days of broadcasts from the show floor. Absolutely amazing if you were a remote working on this on a magazine, because, you know... that. Basically, the people who knew the demos best played them, like, five times over and showed you every little bit of them. Like, it was just a treasure trove of stuff. But there was one, yeah, where Miyamoto was like, we're making Star Fox. And, like, there's, like, no reaction. And then the hosts do, like, start clapping. And you can hear some people clapping in the background. And it's it's, uh, it's basically that Star Fox game that it came out, you know, that went on to be. Like everything about that game you sort of know in that reaction. <laughs> like it's all there. This sort of like, eh, I oh yeah, I guess we should clap. Star Fox <laughs> Star Fox colon, I guess we should clap edition. Um <laughs> Yeah. So uh I I was in sitting in bed this morning watching the broadcast of um the treehouse demo of Devil's Third. Oh yeah. Which was the Itagaki supposed comeback game. Which was like a mix of like third person melee sword combat Alan Ninja Gaiden and mixed with first person like Call of Duty multiplayer. And actually, in this presentation, it looks pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah. It goes on to be an all time disaster launch. Of, <laughs> like, infamously, GameStop had 420 copies of the game to sell. <laughs> but that's how
0: much they bought. That was their lack of faith in it. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think like um, someone from who used to work at Nintendo joked with me on Twitter about how I think like they just used to bundle it in with things that people have bought and just be like giving it away and stuff. Like I think that's it just sold so few copies they were just absolutely using it as packing them. foam. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear Yeah that one's not been salvaged for Switch has it um, What a shame No Poor old Devil's Third Out of curiosity What was the theme they did for um, The themed room they did for Bayonetta Was Reggie in like head to toe leather or something or did they... <laughs> No
1: they, sadly they didn't have a room for that It ah, was just yeah, Too
0: cursed Too too horny They,
1: they drew a the line there Watching it now with a bit of distance, so I was like, yeah, there's quite a lot of flashy stuff here. And like we were riding quite high because Mario Kart 8 was already out and exciting. So that was cool.
0: It sounds to me, Matthew, like they had the best exclusive lineup of this E3. I mean, yeah, but they only had that yeah like they only thing, had an exclusive lineup so
1: we we went to an event for this after because we didn't get to go to e3 but they did a they did a, an event in london where they brought all the e3 demos over and i remember playing smash brothers wii u there and splatoon and splatoon was so instantly like pick up and play good fun these were in the dark days where you needed like every pick me up you can get so like going to spend a day playing splatoon was quite nice
0: that's good, yeah. I was going to ask you, Matthew, now the the recap is done. Do you get to go on any fun trips this year? Anywhere, like, cool? I went over for the launch
1: of the Master Chief Collection. We were in LA for less than 24 hours. We landed, went to the party, slept, and then flew back in the middle of the day the next day. Right. We were incredibly tired, not in the mood for it. I don't think Master Chief Collection, like, was in people's hands yet, so people didn't know, like, how fucked it was. So actually, like, the energy of the party was pretty good. But I remember interviewing Bonnie Ross, then head of 343, at the launch party with incredibly loud music in the background, and trying to transcribe this fucking tape. Interviewing someone at a party, you know, it was like that fucking Berlin basement from Hitman 3. (laughs) It's just, like, booming bass, and so I had an interview with her, I had an interview with uh, Frank O'Connor, who's like the sort of ex-future guy, weirdly. We were talk- we ended up talking about his favourite bath pubs. What did you pick? I can't remember. I think they'd all closed by the time. Oh, Weatherspoons. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, like he was early 90s, if not earlier future, right? I think like the pubs were a little bit more interesting then as well. And like a lot yeah. of the good ones have shut in the last couple of years, which is a bit, uh, yeah.
1: The most exciting part of that trip was, uh, I went over, uh, Joe Screbs was on the trip too. It's just us two, weirdly. From the UK, we saw Killian Murphy was on our plane. Oh, right. Obviously, because he was in first class, he got off first to go to border control. And so we were like, oh, there goes Killian Murphy. And then we got off the plane. And then Killian Murphy walked back past us because he'd left something on the plane. And it meant he was stuck at the back of the border control queue with all the scum. And we just kept, we were like right next to him for ages. We kept like getting, you know, because it kind of crisscrosses. We kept coming back round and and being stand, you know, thinking like, should we say hello to him? But he looked so pissed off that he'd fucked his place in the queue that we right. didn't have the guts to say
0: anything to him. Yeah, that's fair enough. I, um, I, I was in the same queue as um John Boyega coming out of the um flight. It was like around Star Wars Celebration Time, so it makes sense. But like, that was a dude whose baseball cap was doing so much heavy lifting of like don't fucking talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, baseball cap super low like, just, you know, looking at, kind of like not making eye contact with anyone just do not say anything. And I was like <laughs> fair enough my friend you uh yeah I, I i wish you well um but yeah that was uh, it was quite funny okay good uh, okay one last turd to flush before we get into this matthew um having talked about just so much stuff from this year lots of irrelevant memories from me which will hopefully be cut down in the edit let's find out um but i was I wanted to talk about uh gamergate very briefly because mm-hmm. this happens towards i think like the end of the year it happened um And it kind of, like, sparked... I mean, certainly, like, on the internet, it it was already hostile to write for the internet. The PC Gamer comments were already, like, full of bastards. But after this, it was, like, a point of no return of, like, the way people interacted with games, journalists. And obviously, I acknowledge that for, you know, um, you know, for non-white, you know, men like me, that was, like, a far worse experience than I had. But even I kind of noticed it. Um, And there was the rise of these very bad faith right-wing players who were extremely dubious but being platformed suddenly and i fucking despised it um a lot of them have kind of gone away as it's kind of emerged that they're snake oil salesmen or they inevitably say something that reflects their actual views that gets them cancelled but i was curious like did this manifest much for you at the time what did you make of it happening at the time because it just it felt like it it consumed the entire games media and what it talked about was itself for about three months, something like that. And then it was like, obviously the fallout would just go on and on. Um, what are your memories yeah, of Yeah, obviously awful. <laughs> like, I, my hot take isn't going to be, I
1: actually really liked it. Right, yeah. uh, terrible, I felt for people who are like heavily, heavily affected by it. I must admit, like I was quite insulated from it in print. You know, it felt like a very online thing. I, I was in kind of two minds about it because obviously sort of solidarity and support by those affected, but it seemed that to to sort of like voice that solidarity you had to engage with talking about games media endlessly which i fucking hated like yeah. you know as a print guy i hated the discourse i hated the self obsession it just it felt really like juvenile to me and it was kind of like why this art form isn't like respected as much as others because it's just so sort of it was like a teenage self-obsession i I, it it drove me up the wall but you were Mm. kind of forced into engaging with it you know just to sort of defend your friends or whatever i've always been a big advocate of like just starving them of oxygen like i just didn't really engage not out of like cowardice or fence sitting these were not people you could ever convince or talk around to your perspective you were only lengthening the conversation by engaging with it it just seemed horrible you the least interesting bit of games is games media specifically, like th- themselves. Yeah. and it just made that the headline and created like a rift which has arguably just grown bigger and bigger and infected every level of life you know i'm not necessarily a big believer in like gamergate is the start of like trump like some people would say but it's like a contributing factor and definitely an indicator of what 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 was happening
0: it was like a bellwether of online discourse like yeah and, and like and like the rise of these shit house right-wing voices with these disingenuous yeah. bad take bad faith takes who would still get who by left-wing people talking about them endlessly would still get platformed and it was yeah. just like living in that cycle constantly yeah. after that you know the realization
1: that these like online ecosystems were kind of like f- feeding everyone what they wanted to hear and kind of like entrenching everyone further i think that was the takeaway which you can apply to everything that happened since you were like mm if if one of these arguments kicks off the internet is is a really terrible place for letting it grow kind of uncontrolled yeah
0: it was just yeah just not good i can't remember if this is the time that like if, like sites started doing from now on we're going to disclose blah 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 we're not going to any parties or if that happened a couple of years before and like truthfully i had a problem with that because a couple of the people who were putting those out there, being like, oh, we're all going to be better behaved now, were people who I know enjoyed a drink at a press event, um, <laughs> but were maybe had aged out of like going to these events and like were suddenly setting standards for younger generations, which I found really. Yeah, we yeah. had all the fun, now you can't. Exactly. They already have to put up with the internet. Do not like put be peer pressure has no value whatsoever. Just keep yeah. your mouth shut. That's kind of how I felt about it. But, Just.
1: Yeah. Uh yeah a tough a tough year for journalists to be considered lowest of a low it would have have to happen in the year that i was uh, given the award journalist journalist for <laughs> the gmas yeah at that
0: point it was a booby prize that no, wasn't it really. <laughs> it was just... like boo <laughs> <laughs> corrupted <laughs> no, you it, persons corrupter of the year <laughs> okay that's enough depressing stuff because we've got two quite fun lists of um games to go through matthew so shall we take a break and come back and do our top tens let's do it Welcome back to the podcast. So, after one hour of preamble, (laughs) we finally get to what the name of the podcast is, the best games of 2014. Um, Those of you who are still listening, great, well done, it's uh, going to be fun. Two top ten lists counting down, and if we have the same game in both lists, we'll talk about it when we get to its highest placement in either list. So, um pretty straightforward. Matthew, is there anything you want to say about your list before we get started? Do you think we'll have much crossover here?
1: As we get into this period, weirdly, we begin to get into games which we've actually talked about quite a lot in other pods. When I made my list, I was like, man, this is going to be really boring for people because they already know my takes on all of these games. Right. So that may have influenced some of my thinking. I may
0: have dropped a couple of things a bit lower just to have the chance to talk about something a bit fresh. I I sort of wrestle with this a bit as well because some of these... Like, maybe two or three of them came up on a very, very old podcast now, The Best Games of the Generation, Part 1 and 2. I went back to that list because
1: I was was making sure, like, in theory, the games from from 2014 in that list should appear in the same order if there's, like, any consistency (laughs) or coherence with this podcast, which there probably isn't. Right. And I think it holds up, but there are also some other games that weren't in that list, so... I don't
0: know I hopefully this isn't super boring and predictable no ultimately I made the choices that I felt were best for the listener and I thought like what you know what didn't make the cut were things I didn't think were that interesting to talk about or one rule I kind of broke a little bit here is I have one DLC in here um as an entry so right. that's a little bit different uh I think we'll, I'll be able to explain why when we get there and I'll have interesting things to say about it but I
1: hope it's not the watchdogs one because that was
0: only fine <laughs> yeah it was actually like um uh eight and pierce's iconic cap dlc matthew that's my number eight so uh looking forward to talking about that um okay let's kick off then do you want to start matthew with your number 10 nez remix 2 oh wow not on my list surprisingly
1: <laughs> i'm putting this in almost as a, an apology to nez remix 1 which came out the tail end of december uh 2013 i kind of completely forgot about it when we did our best games of 2013 but i really love this pairing of games they re-released them as a boxed version with both games in later in 2014 so take this as a general NES remix entry do
0: you know what this game is and is about Samuel vaguely is it like is it like a contemporary uh, actually no no I'm just gonna fucking guess my way through that why don't you just tell me about it I've got an idea of like how it sort of contemporizes NES games but I want you to
1: yeah I I guess the best way of thinking it is WarioWare for for NES games uh, which is confusing because WarioWare has some NES games in it already but it is taking NES classics and chopping them into little mini games that are often built around a, a kind of core mechanic of a game. So you're doing like a rapid five selection of things. You know, it might be like bop five Goombas or reach the top of the flagpole. But it won't be a whole level of Super Mario Brothers. It'll be just the final 10 seconds. And there's like a little time trial element to like go, this is the game I'm in. This is the mechanic I'm engaging with. I have to do it as quickly as possible. That's sort of one half of it. The other half is the eponymous remixing where they took classic games and that added like weird filters or effects to them so like in one you might be playing Super Mario Brothers 3 but it's cloned you as a line of Marios and only one Mario is the actual Mario you're controlling but you've got all these other Marios to like look out on the screen to kind of confuse you Mm. or it may take a character from one Nintendo game to another so it's like quickly collect all the coins in one of the coin bonus rooms in Super Mario Brothers but playing as Kirby from the Nez Kirby game with his moveset so it kind of splices. Together, all these games, it was like you threw the NES catalogue into a into a blender. The remix stuff is definitely like the flashier element of this game, but I still liked the mini games, which were just moments pulled from games because I think a lot of younger people, when they come to NES games, find them a little bit fusty and old and uh, a little like rough around the edges or just too difficult. And what NES Remix did was take them, sort of deconstruct them, and sort of show them to you in their like sort of purest form completely this boss from Zelda 2 that you probably would never get to just dabbling with Zelda 2 but like here's a really cool moment so you can enjoy the sword fighting. I actually think they double as almost tutorials for like how to play these NES games by pulling out a set moment and making you master it. I just thought this was really really cool. It's got me really really excited, you know, about a catalog which I kind of you know, I, I don't have like a vast amount of love for the NES. You know, I'm, I'm a I'm a bit of a 3D Nintendo head these days. But I thought this was a this was the perfect way to sort of celebrate it and a much more interesting thing to do with their back catalogue than they they do elsewhere. Really, you know, it's sort of Virtual Console and this and the idea of of kind of taking quite iconic stuff and playing with it.
0: that just really spoke to me. That's interesting. So this is a Wii U exclusive, is that right? Both of them are.
1: They did do a version of it for 3DS. I think it's still its own bespoke thing. So eShop game as well, going to vanish soon from the ecosystem um, when we do our episode on last minute things to buy from wii u and 3ds e-shops this will definitely be on the list a real oddity i'm actually just really surprised it hasn't been moved onto switch there's nothing kind of inherently like wii u about
0: it yeah that's interesting uh yeah it's like it seems like you can buy a box copy of it on 3ds but it's like it'll set you back a bit um right yeah so not you're also not entirely sure it got did it the box copy get released in the u k That's quite hard to ascertain, but either way, yeah. I think you just buy it digitally, like you say so uh yeah, oh interesting i don't actually know that's exactly what this game was that's um yes, yeah, so I like the idea of like pulling these games apart, classic games apart, and putting yeah. them back together again in quite novel ways and Maybe illustrating their magic to them if you just see them as fusty when you boot them up in the Switch store, you know what I mean? And just like, yeah, "Yeah, there it is. And there's some games you kind of
1: reevaluate when you play this.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting uh oh that's, that's a cool pick i was not expecting that matthew you have subverted expectations but yeah I guess but you'll be
1: cross sense. later when i've not included something really important you'll be like you think nez remix is better than blah and then you know mm. we'll we'll do that whole song and dance <laughs>
0: interesting and i wonder if you'll get mad when um i've booted a very key wii u game out of this year because i consider it more of a switch game these days so uh ooh. yeah we'll see we'll see the, the tension can mount um okay my number 10 is middle earth shadow of mordor um oh one of those sevens um (laughs) (laughs) so at the time i was already a little bit sort of burned out in assassin's creed i'd sort of fallen out of love with them after the third one which was you know quite sort of oversimplified and that sort of thing and like i I was what always bothered me about them and i've talked about this in the pod before is the fact that the climbing did itself and then by the time they did assassin's creed 3 the combat did itself and you're just holding down one button to counterattack a whole bunch of people and i was like these games need to be more than this they like they're too Mm. successful and they're they've just they're treating their audience like they're you know like they can't actually like press a button every like few seconds and it's like come on like we didn't have to outlaw the jump button you know but um this game came along it kind of was assassin's creed but with a bunch of other weird stuff layered on top of it there's a very strange adaptation of tolkien's work where it's some ranger guy possessed by a dead elven sort of king is that right matthew i think that's the plot yeah, um, Celebrimbor, the Elven
1: um, Forge Master.
0: Yeah, and then this is like even
1: <laughs> Forge Master.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, yeah, great made-up <laughs> word. That's good. <laughs> of, got got your Google synonyms out there. Ah, yes. I must take my horse to the Forge Master. <laughs> <right on foot.
1: laughs>
0: yeah, Matthew Castle presents the Elder Scrolls. I would, uh, I would definitely play that. Um, yeah, so this comes along, and of course has this. It's set in this very brown world where you're basically going around killing um orcs. But there is this orc hierarchy. Um you are you have this power where you're basically brainwashing your these orcs into working for you. They become your sort of like rising stars basically. They duel And then you can eventually reach the point, basically, where there's this entire strata of uh, how the orcs sort of, like, behave. These kind of, like, persistent figures, and they can all be, basically, in your employ. And that's kind of, like, what mastery looks like in the game, I suppose. Um, And there are different ranks of them, so you really do start with, like, a sort of scrot, kind of, like, (laughs) complete, like, nobody orc, who then fights his way to the top with your backing, basically. Um, Yeah, so it's... That and that system is extremely compelling. I think people have talked about the fact wouldn't it be nice to put it in other games and then Warner Brothers trademarked it, so now it can't be. Good. Innovation, very good, even though they <laughs> took all their climbing and jumping from Assassin's Creed and good, well done. Um that's good. Good use of what a shitty thing. Good use of lawyers there. Very good. Um so yeah, that's um so that's not gonna happen. Um I assume that this upcoming Wonder Woman game from the same developer um will will uh, we'll build on that a little bit. But um basically, yes, it was like this firmly seven out of ten like you know borrows from assassin's creed like the kind of 360 degree kind of counter-attack combat system quite simple combat system platforming in a world that's not particularly evocative but um these kind of like yeah these, these sort of like i guess they're almost like companions like you know these these sort of your troops you become sort of emotionally invested in their in their journeys throughout the game and that was the true magic of it it was like an okay game with an amazing system bolted onto it and that's why i think Mm. i had to include it here because it was something i hadn't seen before implemented really really well and like that that carried me through a game that i otherwise probably would have played for a couple of hours and then ditched Matthew, but um Mm. nemesis system just like that was a little slice of games magic there and so i think it had to be in my list to represent what what was going on in 2014
1: i have more attachment to shadow of war i I had to play a lot more of that because i was on um uh, xbox One at the time and we were covering it on that in a big way so I, i know that game a lot better yeah i agree with you like without that system the actual story missions are like not a lot of fun but that system is so good that it it, it, yeah, it livens it up. I love the videos on YouTube of like where people have set up entire platoons where like everyone is a double agent, and then they kind of activate them and they will stab their leader to, to death and things. You can, you know, it is systemic enough that you can create some quite wild scenarios. Um, yeah. And that's cool,
0: but. The the Lord of the Rings lore in this is like uh, quite a bad hang. <laughs> oh, yeah, really tough. But then I kind of like, I, I'm sort of um, more and more of the mindset that the Lord of the Rings lore doesn't have much value outside of the two stories. It's sort of it's built to support, you know what I mean? Like it's.
1: The Rings of Power has characters who are more Shadow of Mordor characters, yeah. like crossover. And when you're watching it, you're like, oh, yeah, I know what, you know, this is like Celebrimbor before he's a scary ghost. <laughs> uh, and he's just like a nice bloke or uh, well, seemingly I think it... nice but uh, a seemingly nice bloke who's a, a a bit too into making rings if you ask
0: me <laughs> um. oh that amazing thing you told me on our lord of the rings episode about what shadow of war suggests about how the the lore of these games will we- weaves back into the the books and the films matthew that was incredible the ending yes. of that game um, amazing and that sums up the sort of tacky 90s comic book like the riff kind of like approach to adapting lord of the rings that they sort of take here it's just has very little value um, yeah. yeah story did like almost nothing for me i thought it was very very boring very boring use that world ugly world as well really ugly it has like two quote-unquote biomes but one's like overcast green biome and the other one's like just permanently brown biome. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah that nemesis stuff like i should now have n- i've only played a bit of shadow of war do you think that is a better game than this it takes
1: the nemesis system kind of to like much more interesting places it has like a bigger like base of of uh characteristics to kind of sort of procedurally generate all the orcs from so there's just more variety it's it's just classic more 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 sequel making everything that's interesting in the first is like a bit more interesting in the second
0: what i like about this game though is that like it there there isn't much scale to it you feel like you're just sort of bothering a couple of settlements of orcs like they're trying (laughs) to get on with stuff and you're just like i'm gonna overthrow you (laughs) by brainwashing you and like it's quite twisted but i quite like that weird sort of like there's the stakes don't feel super high here um, I'm just sort of like tormenting these these yeah. these creatures. Um, yeah,
1: probably the best riff I've seen on Batman's combat
0: too. Yeah, that's true. Actually, that's where it like definitely exceeded Assassin's Creed. I think is um, yeah to like build on that a little bit. Um, it's just Batman, but bloodier.
1: You can chop off heads, which Batman would never do
0: without yeah. being like really put out by it. <laughs> yeah exactly that's uh yeah and uh, some fan outcry i think so what's um what's your number nine matthew everyone's favorite professor layton versus phoenix right ace attorney oh amazing it's been a little while since you talked about this
1: not hugely loved by the ace attorney community i think a lot of people would say it's the weakest ace attorney game which is just wrong this was uh, a pairing of two worlds which were very important to me on Nintendo the Professor Layton games of Level 5 and the Ace Attorney games of Capcom set in uh a mystical kingdom where magic seems to be a thing and uh, the trials are witch trials Phoenix Wright is obviously there to help people in the trial sections while Professor Layton in between those trials sort of investigates the town and solves puzzles to kind of move the story along. On the Ace Attorney side it also saw the return of Shuta Kumi, who had left the series as the kind of writer um, hadn't worked on the Miles Edgeworth game, didn't work on Dual Destinies I think you can feel his presence in this game, he is just—he makes better characters. Like what I like about the Ace Attorney side of this is the, the the characters and the caricatures really pop in a way that they just don't in Dual Destinies or the Miles Edgeworth games. On the latent side, it's quite weak as a puzzle collection, but. I still like the idea of of these two very different kind of mystery characters coming together and their worlds colliding Um, your mileage definitely varies on this depending on if you are into both those worlds if you are I think you'd be impressed by how they they merge the two things together. Production values-wise, the way they kind of make the two character designs kind of meet halfway so that they don't look completely bizarre standing next to each other. The use of music in this game is fantastic. Professor Layton instruments, sort of accordions and violins, a bit more folky, but kind of married with the kind of classic tunes from Ace Attorney. It's an absolute banger, uh, production values-wise. This was one of my favourite games of 2014. Um, I liked it a little less... through it a second time. It just has this like initial wow factor and as a piece of fan service it really spoke to me and I have fond memories of covering it on the mag and doing a cover for it. It felt like the one issue of O and N that was like truly a Matthew Castle issue. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's yeah. tied up
1: with those happy memories.
0: I think what is interesting is that like the series uh, both of them are in this kind of weird period after this of like Ace Attorney's never felt like I know what the deal is so that it has a consistent i have a consistent read on its present condition while it's been right. at capcom like um obviously there were two 3ds um 3ds installments matthew and um, we talked about on how um one of the key personnel of those 3ds installments left right mm. um uh capcom a couple of years ago and then obviously they brought um greatest attorney chronicles across but like i don't firmly get the sense that there's a new phoenix right being made right now you know um and likewise i know professor Layton's in quite a rough place these days as well I mean, Le- so...
1: Layton's pretty much done um, yeah. like they they wrapped up the the two trilogies on 3DS they then did like a spin off with his like niece or some yeah. kind of relative it was absolute garbage level 5 they're in a bit of a odd place they actually suffer for the lack of a nintendo oh. handheld you know yeah. where they did so much good work which maybe haven't translated as well to like full console games yeah ace attorney tricky i feel like there's appetite for it otherwise they wouldn't have brought great ace attorney chronicles over right yeah once they put it on everything in the hd collection maybe showed them that there is a bit more love for it so is there Mm. another shoot ace attorney i don't know do we want him making something else the, the yeah. last rumor I heard with relation to him was um, there's copyright trademarks registered for potentially a ghost
0: trick re-release. Yeah, oh that'd be nice wouldn't it? A um,
1: big HD version of that I could see that happening but I also don't want to shoot to me just, you know, having to like manage his old games being updated that doesn't sound very satisfying for a man of his talents.
0: That's not really what someone who, like a, a game designer like him does either, that's like that's sort of the porting thing isn't really like, I don't see why he would even be that relevant to that process more than just being a sort of, like, cheerleader for the stuff, you know?
1: Maybe he's just the face they wheel out for it, but, you know, in terms of a new game from him, I mean there hasn't been one in five six years
0: yeah but i think i think to your point like um a lot of people do seem to be discovering this series through that switch collection or yeah god forbid playing it on their tvs on ps4 or whatever which is completely wrong to me um they're completely <laughs> alien but um yeah that's uh that's cool so it's but it's, it's at least good that this arrived at a moment when both these series were like you know still really key parts of the nintendo handheld identity you know what i mean like yeah. seen as icons seen as cornerstones um, yeah. Uh, yeah
1: and and a real like doesn't exist outside of 3ds like it's mm. a it's a real like we'll live and die on this console very very uh, hard to get your hands on now you're probably best off buying the digital version from the 3ds e store to be honest
0: yeah ah uh, yes yeah, so the uh, the mgs4 of uh, the 3ds is. very good <laughs> it's 100 percent the mgs4 <laughs> oh okay excellent Okay, my number nine is Bioshock Infinite Burial at Sea, part two. Oh, I I wondered if this might make your list. Yeah, so it's tough because I know I talked about this a bit on the 2013 episode because we got into the whole Bioshock Infinite thing, didn't we? Of like, yeah, it's like, you know, um, it's themes and how they're explored are flawed in all these different ways, and I accept that criticism. But also, what a thing it was that they made. Um, Yeah, yeah. And like, it's interesting because there was quite... Last year, there was a whole thing about uh so the start of this game sorry the start of this expansion uh you are elizabeth walking through this very idealized version of paris and like you know basically like i would say that it's sort of like paris keyword stuff come to life it's meant to be cartoonish and ridiculous it's almost like you're watching a sort of disney movie version of paris from like the disney sort of golden age it's, mm. it's that sort of um vibe to it there was a tweet about but the baguette boy the boy dancing with a baguette in this right. that summed up the bioshock infinite kind of like discourse to me which was a take on something that is actually like largely inconsequential and also like just doesn't just kind of goes against what the game is trying to present to you it's very obvious that this is not really Paris you're walking through it's meant to be elizabeth's vision of what paris is and Mm. so the dancing baguette boy kind of makes sense in that context (laughs) but the idea of being like oh they wanted to show you it was paris france by having a boy dancing with a baguette that sums up what social media is like for how people talk about games to me do you know what i mean though it's like and that's always frustrating me about bioshock infinite you know what i mean it's like this
1: this game is like a treasure trove for dunkers
0: (laughs) bioshock generally is isn't
1: it i was gonna say if you had a baguette you would dance with joy i know that about you (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: very much so but it's like you got to meet it halfway, at least. That's like, you at least know it that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I love that intro. I think it really sets an amazing scene because it then, when it cuts back to Rapture, as it's like basically on the brink of collapse, like the end of the, you know, um, sort of 50s, kind of like golden age of Rapture, quote unquote, as like basically like there's a civil war about to kick off and splice is about to be everywhere. It's a second half to sort of like to a storyline that kicked off the year before where basically Elizabeth and Booker from Bioshock Infinite find themselves in rapture, essentially, um, and so like you know it, uh, figuring out the kind of relationship between what happened at the end of Bioshock Infinite and this sort of like comic booky crossover of the two Bioshocks is. Is like part of the mystery of the game, but basically what happens is um, Elizabeth um, sort of like gets caught in the whole plot of how Atlas basically forces um, Rapture to collapse. And like, if you're a fan of Bioshock, it is terrific fan service on that level and quite a lot of mm. fun. Um, and then it also links back to the very start of Bioshock in in a quite a cool way. But what's also great about this is it actually it leans slightly more into the immersive sim nature of like you know the the predecessor I arguably bioshock infinite is is a first person shooter with powers rather than an immersive sim um i wouldn't necessarily reject that criticism but here it's almost like we're going back to the likes of deus ex and games like that by giving you a crossbow and making it a stealth game which is kind of what they do here it's like you are basically playing yeah Bioshock Infinite Bioshock Infinite's mechanics have been retrofit for you to play it like a stealth game and I think that's quite cool it makes up for the fact that you know Elizabeth is not as powerful as Booker in how um, how it's being played so the fact that they do this twist on the Bioshock Infinite gameplay but also have this really fun spin on how the two Bioshock universes collide it means I absolutely love this Matthew I think this is like you, I think you need to when you talk about Bioshock Infinite in its totality, you need to talk about these two DLCs because I think they yeah. they do tell quite a complete story together, and it gives it kind of like a proper ending that you don't really get in Bioshock Infinite, which just sort of has a ghost fight then is over basically. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on this one, Matthew? You
1: know, as you were saying that, you know, it's making me think about what we were talking about earlier with defining direction of this period was, and you know, I thought it was multiplayer, but it is also probably like DLC as as a as a concept. And people doing interesting things, and a lot of people just added, like, a boring level to their game or a map pack. But the few times people did use them to not finish the story, but kind of investigate the story from another angle or dig deeper into their lore was always really exciting. It's sort of sold with the game now, right? If you buy, like, the yeah the sort of collections of it, you get everything all together.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, it's just in there, um, basically. So it's just always kind of part of it now, which is good, I think. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, this is cool. I mean, like, yeah, I, th- I think they have previous forms. The, the, is it Minerva's Den for Bioshock 2 was also really good?
0: Yeah, yeah, the sort of standalone story. That was obviously a different developer, but, you know, it yeah, was yeah. Equally, equally done well. Um, yeah, yeah, very cool. The, well, the cloud that hangs over this, of course, is that they shut the studio afterwards, yeah um, which is like a waste of an amazingly group, talented group of people, and um, you know, it's going to come up a lot in the next couple of years, isn't it? Mm. Uh, for uh, for obvious reasons. If
1: only they hadn't blown all that money on the baguette boy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, that was uh, yeah, like a big. Um, there's a big loss on that in the uh, take two k financial statements, I believe. Um, anyway, yes. Yeah, so that's Bioshock Infinite, Matthew. Um, the Bioshock Infinite, Barely Sea Part Two. I do very much recommend if you've never played these two as a pair to just go through it. The first part's like pretty good. That gives you more of the sort of like oh, here is here is rapture before the fall. You get to see what it's like going around a whole shopping center basically and like interacting with the citizens. The very eerie vibe that something is a very amiss about this underwater world and it's about to get a lot worse. Um you get that experience which you don't get in Bioshock 1 and 2 Um, so yes well worth playing what's your number 8 Matthew? my number 8 is Kirby Triple Deluxe nice this is uh, yeah a a 3 for 3 of uh, Nintendo things I've not played that I know uh, Matthew Castle is a big fan of
1: we talked a lot about Kirby in the Kirby episode funnily enough which I recommend you going back to listen to
0: because I feel
1: it's like a really good celebration of all these games but this this one's quite an important one for me Um, Kirby Kirby was always a series I dismissed as being a bit kind of kiddish, you know. I I saw it only as a platforming challenge, which I don't think is actually the right way to to sort of enjoy Kirby. Um, and for whatever reason, Kirby Triple Deluxe is the one that unlocked it for me. I think it's got amazing production values helps. It's like an incredibly shiny thing. Um, it makes great use of the 3D. It's it's a 2D platformer, but it does a lot of like dual layer stuff where, you know, things are sort of thrown into the foreground or you can jump into the background. A trick that was borrowed from the uh, Wario Land uh, Virtual Boy game had a lot of that dual plane stuff, another 3D game. Unlike that, though, this does doesn't like break your neck like the Virtual Boy does, which is good. It just it's, it's a, a really polished exploration of like the core Kirby idea, which is you absorb uh, enemies, take on their powers. But what kind of changed as the series went on is those powers became much more fleshed out and those individual personas almost felt like sort of standalone heroes kind of satisfying to control in their own right. That doesn't start here. Like, arguably, it happens in the Wii game, kind of, like, has um, a much more kind of complete sets for these characters. But here, like, just the, the introduction of new characters and how those different characters are sort of exploited throughout the game. There's also like a little fighting mini game like Smash Brothers where you can play with all those different Kirby power-ups and you just really appreciate like how fully thought out everything is in this game which initially seems quite throwaway and I think that's really the magic of Kirby. It seems like a game that's just a scattershot with like a thousand different things but actually all those things are as fully featured as, you know, any kind of core idea would be in like a Mario game, say. It's just a really great visual sense of humour. This game revolves around Around a power-up where you eat this sort of hyper fruit or hyper seed, I think it's called, and you sort of go supernova and you can basically inhale the whole world. As a mechanic, it's pretty basic—you just press a button and a cutscene plays. But the just the design of like entire levels getting sucked into Kirby's gob or him slurping down like huge sea serpents, you know, like he was you know sucking down a piece of spaghetti or whatever. It's there's there's a lot of like really funny, icky, weird stuff in this game. And as mentioned on the Kirby episode and many other episodes, uh, it, it kind of builds to an unexpectedly massive action climax, uh, which I've likened to, to Platinum Games, which sounds really daft given the kind of the world of Kirby. But honestly, you know, if you don't play this game, check out the final boss, you know, these these games go places and always end big. I think there's enough craft for an older fan to enjoy and some of the stuff hidden around the edges can get trickier, but I also just think it's really worth celebrating that a game which is made to be like an introductory platformer, you know, for a younger gamer is as imaginative and well made as polished as this, you know, children's licensed games. Mostly shit. This is just absolutely fantastic. You know, really love it. There's better Kirby games, but this is the one from 2014,
0: so... Do you think this one's a key step along the way to uh, Kirby in the Forgotten Land, Matthew? It kind of looks like... There's like a little bit of DNA between the powers in it, but I don't know if that's just Kirby-wide, generally. A lot of them are just repeated. I mean
1: forgotten land is like another step in itself like the step into 3d is like it almost feels like a new era of kirby right yeah i think the really key one is that first wii game which is directed by shinya kamazaki who's like the guy who basically comes in and kind of like looks after kirby now he kind of gives it a more solid gaming core on which to build stuff and this game definitely builds on it it then builds on it again in the second 3ds game where you get all the robot stuff that's really cool you get kirby in a mech forgotten world it's just like another thing on top of that it still shares some values you know the focus mm. on like unlockables and like arcade challenges and the kind of the sort of weirdness around the edge that pads it out into something much more than itself yeah. i'd say that's like classic kind of kumizaki stuff
0: mm i might need to listen back to the kirby episode that i was on to um (laughs) to like learn more about kirby's past now that i've played forgotten land and find the bits i like and pick them out but um
1: when i started in gamer i didn't really like kirby and kirby didn't get like a huge amount of love from in gamer not specifically me from me like no one was really into it and now i just think kirby's like a lot more on the map as like a kind of a legit important part of the nintendo puzzle
0: yeah, there's a lot of Kirby on 3DS as well, right? Like relatively speaking, like quite yeah, a Yeah, they
1: tend job. to take like the mini games from the main games and pad them out and sell them as standalone games and right. there's a lot of like eShop downloads. They're they they are a, yeah, pretty kind of productive team, how.
0: Uh, yeah, there is indeed like what's that Kirby eating Cake one that came out? I just thought, oh, I was well, like, "Oh clean wow, too Kirby"
1: or something. It's it's a bit like Fall Guys except your your fall guy gets fatter and fatter cuz you're eating like trifles the whole time.
0: <laughs> it does sound pretty good, but I guess because uh, like, you have to it's got yeah. big us energy. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> yeah, certainly sums up my year so far. Um yeah, pretty perfect. Um okay, so my number eight Matthew is Titanfall. Um spoiler alert, Destiny did not make my list. Oh okay. Um, so we talk a lot about we talked a lot about like the idea of what a next gen kind of console represents in terms of like your expectations of games goes up and you know, the sort of, like, what does next-gen look like? We, this generation, we're very much in the kind of... I think we've all kind of come to the realisation that there is no next-gen something that's coming, really. It's just prettier versions of what you're already playing on PS4 and um, Xbox One. And that's that's kind of just the... That's the, sort of the era we're in. When you look back, like, I, I suppose that... Yes, there is, like, the increase in visual fidelity that happens. But sometimes that next-gen feeling is a magic trick. You know what I mean? It's mm. like so they show you something amazing you've never seen before and even if it's like actually possible on something you already own the fact that you're seeing it this new thing on something that uh, you know on a piece of hardware you just bought um and and it kind of like wows you in that very specific way is still kind of like it's still amazing um and that can still that that is like that is what the next gen moment is i think it's like oh wow i cannot believe i'm looking at this we talked about arkham knight earlier seeing gameplay of that that is like a next gen magic trick Mm -hmm. another one is seeing the titans land in this game and getting in them and like the beautiful animation of that like the act of calling in these basically mech walkers and then landing on the battlefield um and then climbing inside them and then suddenly you are in this giant mech shooting people in this first person shooter that is like ridiculously exciting that that felt like a next gen moment to me at the time that's like that was a great selling point for this game now You have mentioned that the drawback of Titanfall 1 is that it lacked this sort of like, uh, yeah, it lacked a single player campaign to kind of really kind of get you into it. But the multiplayer shooter they did build with this heavy emphasis on like athleticism, you know, kind of like doing these kind of cool sort of like wall runs and jumps and um, Mm. having this kind of like symbiotic relationship with this, you know, this Titan that you call in. And then also this kind of like weird presence of like AI troops running around the sort of like um, the battlefield for you to farm essentially in order for you to have enough, you know, basically points to call in your Titan. It felt like innovation to me. It was Mm. really exciting. It was different. It was notably different to Call of Duty. It wasn't a game about you just sort of getting sniped from nowhere every few seconds. It was a game about like... These big dramatic moments and turnarounds, and oh my god, there's like fucking three mechs having a fight down that street kind of thing. Yeah. um And I just really got into that, despite the fact that it was real—at least on PC where I played it—it it was really obvious that it just died straight away. It just never became a success. Yeah. Um, not helped because obviously it was tied to Origin. This is when EA just didn't like Steam for whatever reason, and so you couldn't play this on Origin. And I think it just died a lot faster than it should have done. Even by the end of 2014, when I was playing it, I, I felt like there were. I was seeing the same names over and over again because it's just such a handful of people playing it. But I thought the drama of it was ridiculously exciting, helped by this amazing kind of like music and these, um, yeah, these these kind of like mechs having these very cool abilities. You feeling that power curve really sort of firmly when they're part of the battlefield. The really exciting moments when they're about to blow up, so you evacuate them. Like all of that was just a really compelling hook to me for a mm. great first-person shooter. But it just felt like. The wrong game at the wrong time for some reason. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, Destiny was just yeah. Everyone was fucking bopping to Paul McCartney's Destiny song. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being disingenuous there. And like you know, going like, oh wow, isn't it cool that like Peter Dinklage is this this robot? Like it just the whole thing was like. I, and I was like, but this is the magic over here. This is like a, <laughs> this is an absolute sugar rush of a multiplayer experience. It's incredible. They should have um, but- got Ringo to write a song. <laughs> titan fall <laughs> that was my uh ringo voice there <laughs> watched a lot of thomas the tank engine um so, so it really bothered me this felt like oh yeah the crazy of call of duty have found a way to take the first person to shoot to the next level and people weren't bothered but they wanted to play the same levels over and over again in destiny matthew and like yeah that i didn't get it personally um yeah. and so it was it broke my heart a little bit for it to not succeed but I had like... I probably played it for about 30 hours at the time. And I was just Mm. so into it. I just really loved how the guns felt. The smart pistol in this game was really fucking rad. Um... Yeah, it was just it was just really exciting. This was this was evolution to me of that type of shooter. Mm. Did, you ever, did you play this much at the time? Did it kind you of pass know, I, you by? I, I, I was
1: terrible at it. I get everything you're saying. I complete agreement about like the craft of it and 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 how good it is. But for me personally, like the the, the core idea that your reward is you become this huge mech psychologically. When I'm playing first-person shooters, I don't like to have like be the center of attention. <laughs> you know, I tend to play kind of very support roles where I can in games. And to me, the idea of, like, you're now this huge lumbering thing and, like, everyone's going to try and take you down. Yes, you're incredibly powerful, but in a weird way, it's, like, almost too much responsibility for me. Like, I'm almost happy being just a man in this world. And you just can be. And you know, I'm just a man. I'm just a normal man. Um, <laughs> um, y- and you can be. You know, that's completely up to you. But, like, I feel like I never properly engage with this or I, I, I just don't have the... Mindset. I'm too passive for the kind of awesome aggressive force
0: that is Titanfall. Well, I sort of get what you mean because it kind of puts you centre stage when those things arrive, and I panic
1: because everyone's (laughs) like, "Fucking get that guy!" Like I am the easiest mech to kill because I'm just like,
0: "Oh, I don't know where I'm looking," and then that's it. I'm just fucked, you know? Yeah, but I think I think the thing is that they are they are almost like you will get a titan no matter how badly you perform in the game, basically, and like. They are also designed to make you feel empowered, even when you're struggling. Which yeah, I think that's the one of yeah. things that's good about I, it. it
1: yeah it's it's just a it's just a dumb thing in my brain. But that isn't a criticism of it at all. It's just why, and also like, I just didn't have time to be playing a, well, a multiplayer shooter. <laughs>
0: No, that's fine, and it, you know it's low on my list because it doesn't have the single player. Like that's why like Titanfall Two is such a great package. Um, mm. I'm sure, you know, obviously, that will come up in uh, you know when we do twenty sixteen. But yeah, I still I still really valued it at the time, and it bummed me out that it just wasn't it just wasn't being accepted in the same way. And you know the foundations of this, the athleticism of the first person shooter, mm. that's what that's what would power Apex Legends ultimately, and and like finally give respawn the success they deserved. But yeah, it was um this was this was super cool. It was just yeah just kind of ignored which was really weird but Ooh. such as it is it's still a favorite of mine what's your number seven matthew my well, number seven is the evil within
1: oh not on my list shinji mikami's glorious question mark return <laughs> to um survival horror over the shoulder shooting Ala resident evil 4 it came at an interesting time obviously resident evil 5 and 6 had been on 360 um we hadn't sort of seen, you know, Mikami in this space. He he'd made Vanquish um, with Platinum. Uh, and it was just really interesting to see what he was going to do. The resulting game, like, it's definitely a mess, The Evil Within. Like, narratively, it's horrible because it's sort of set inside a, a sort of an insane mind. So there's, like, no rhyme or reason to the order of the levels. Um, it also, it does give them some freedom to kind of, like... Take the game all over the place, and it kind of almost sort of does like urban sort of Resident Evil 2 horror, it does like rural village Resident Evil 4 horror, it does mad sort of Silent Hill nightmare sort of prisons. It really goes all over the shop, which is kind of like a strength, but it's married to the fact that I couldn't tell you what the story of this game is. It's, it's really satisfying to play, but I, f- I feel like it's a, a much grimier, um, dirtier, like stressful game than Resident Evil. I think Resident Evil, like, even when it's trying to panic you, has a certain sort of sheen to it. This is, like, it's never really about being cool. It's just about, like, scrabbling for survival. There's an interesting mechanic where you can set bodies on fire, which can then set other enemies on fire to kind of, like, limit your ammo. But rather than being just, like, a cool thing you can do, it's, like, an absolute necessity. Very stressful time playing this (laughs) game. But I just feel, compared to, like, some of the other interim Resident Evils and... Other people who've done like this sort of over the shoulder kind of action game. You can sense Mikami's presence in it. As a as a kind of like constant stressful action gauntlet, I think there's like a definite sense of like a master with their foot on the gas pedal in this kind of like applying stress in some places making other places a bit easier and a bit sort of flashier fun then throwing in a horrible boss like i think it really puts you through the ringer and takes great pleasure doing so and i didn't really feel that as much in evil within two um ghostwire tokyo i think is very sort of bloated and unmakami-ish but this one like it has some of that kind of roller coaster shape of resident evil 4 it's just like a like a lot rougher with it and it takes you to some much darker like grimmer places but i have real affection for it i don't know if it's just sort of like stockholm syndrome or kind of like sort of forged in the fire of this game i kind of came out the other end really appreciating what it did but uh, you know i like that it was quite cruel and sadistic and I, i felt like i had achieved something when i came out the other end of it in that sort of like bleakness as well the few pockets of safety when it gives you a save room and they're always indicated by it plays like claire de lune the tune and whenever i hear that tune it's just like in the game that is you're like oh just the, the the sense of relief i think he just has real fun with knowing kind of how desperate you're going to be at times in this game and then the kind of sense of release when you when you finally find safe ground there's a lot of magic in this quite grueling hard-going experience
0: yeah i should really like actually properly play through both of these at some point i got to this when i got to the boss the girl who chases you around that. yeah
1: so there's a lot of like one hit kill bosses and like horrible monsters that like scream in your face the whole time like it's yeah.
0: it's it's pretty bleak <laughs> well i really like the sort of cursed like spooky vibes of it because it goes a lot harder than resi ever does doesn't yeah. it um and like the the save the save points become a hor- more and more horrible space to enter each time you go or like throughout the game right they become a bit nastier. Um,
1: so- they're kind of creepier definitely it's like a sort of like mental asylum world that you travel to
0: yeah and i think that that's actually like a really cool idea for a survival horror game that your safe area your safe not safe space fucking hell that's such a loaded term now but you know like a uh, safe <laughs> yeah. zone is like becomes under threat or becomes less desirable to go into that's a very cool idea um i think that's got something in common with the idea of like ink ribbons you run out of in resi the idea yeah. that, like you just you don't have safety in the very familiar kind of game mechanic um i also thought that the the opening the opening like where where things go wrong is just so scary and nasty as well like the butcher's kind of like the butcher is an area you have to escape from, and then yeah, he like ca- he like, he ca- he like saws the chainsaw into the back of your leg and shit when you're running away. It's just so <laughs> it's so nasty and grueling there's, from the start. It's just yeah, unrelenting. It's
1: yeah, almost a little bit of like Outlast in it, in kind of just how sort of full on it is of like these big horrible things that are just gonna fuck you up and. Like, it can take many, many hours before you're strong enough to face off against certain things, and he he really draws it out. It's a long game as well. Really good DLC spread as well for this one. One of the iconic monsters is a man with a safe for a head who's basically Pyramid Head, except it's a safe. Um, (laughs) I don't know what his name is. He might be called the Watcher or the something, the Chaser or something. Safe
0: Head. Safe Head.
1: (laughs) Um, We had had a little box out in OXM which was... um, what's inside the safe <laughs> of the man with the safe for head <laughs> and then it was just a picture of an open safe and it'd be like, you know, it's a copy of Spyro <laughs> uh, very uh, cool. classic <laughs> mag bullshit yeah, um, but you played yeah. There's a DLC where you played as him in first person, basically going around fucking up people with his horrible hammer. Um, yeah. That was quite fun. And there was another one where you played as um, Dexter's sister from
0: Dexter. I think it's a like Dexter's sister from Dexter's lab. <laughs> no, like, that oh, would be a very different. DD, game. <laughs> <laughs> the DD DLC for Evil Within. Do you yeah. remember Evil Within? You played as DD from <laughs> Dexter's lab. That was weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that makes much more sense. Yeah, Jennifer Carpenter. Yeah,
1: and yeah, again, had it's like oh own like mechanics own sort of stuff going on you know very worthwhile playing like if you were into the horrible horrible world of the evil within there was loads of evil within to enjoy which i quite liked
0: yeah this is like i think this is just this is quite cool like um you sort of saw what bethesda was spending all of its fallout and elder scrolls money on right and it was like bankrolling games from rad teams basically like um in genres Mm. that were that had become maybe less popular or forgotten um and that was kind of what this felt like. It was like a, basically like a, a Resi game. Um, it did compare favorably to Resi 6. I won't dispute that, you know, despite my <laughs> bullshit um, defense of that game sometimes <laughs> on this podcast. Like it was closer to what people wanted. Um, and yeah, I kind of respect that unrelenting nastiness, even if I did find some frustration with the game itself. Yeah. Um, do you think it has much of a reputation these days? Do people talk about it that much, The Evil Within? I think
1: people prefer Evil Within 2, though I think it sort of sands off a lot of the rough edges and it has like a sort of open world areas which let you step away from it a lot more. Like they they, they hold a lot more control over how stressed you are in in Evil Within 1. I think it's a more interesting game for it. Mm. But Evil Within 2 is probably like more traditionally entertaining. I should just finish this at some point.
0: It was like also not afraid to be quite difficult and make you fight for it. I just like that about it. Like it was, it did have the the DNA of what people wanted I think from survival horror yeah um, yeah okay that's a cool pick Matthew was that your number seven Now was seven yeah okay my number seven is Metal Gear Solid 5 Ground Zeroes. is this on your list it isn't okay interesting we'll get into that mm. a prologue essentially to The Phantom Pain which will come out the next year a prologue that is basically set in Guantanamo Bay uh, sort of like what is obviously the kind of like an inhumane uh, sort of like American prison essentially where you are liberating to prisoners of war from snakes kind of like um you know private army essentially you're going in there to get them out and their spaces you as you go you will learn more and more about what happened to the prisoners there um is you know the camp is run by xof but it's clearly about the rancid bullshit that um george w bush was up to in the wake of 9-11 um all the kind of inhumane bullshit he got away with off the back of that that's like that's kind of like the real kind of core theme of it that's what sets it apart from the phantom pain really which doesn't really interrogate that that much um the phantom pain is i guess like slightly more fantastical and not really about war so much it's more like that's a game where it's kind of more about like go to these sandboxes and take them apart you don't really sit and think about the themes so much this is a game that's weirdly mm. heavy on themes this is like some truly nasty stuff has happened to chico the boy that you're rescuing from this and uh some uh, an extremely grim and nasty fate awaits paz um in this i won't go into but got a lot of discussion at the time because i think it asked some questions about how you know hideo kojima and his team handle tone um, whether mm. it's the right fit for metal gear what happens to Paz and this i think that's a fair question to ask i'm not sure it totally lands myself um it is it, what essentially comes down to though is exploring one phantom pain style um stealth uh, immersive sim sandbox and seeing if you can make your way through without getting caught basically while liberating these prisoners it's quite hard <laughs> I played it again yesterday and like they don't make it easy for you to hide bodies in this which i think it makes I think it makes it actually slightly unreasonable as a challenge um right. <laughs> going through this space um but I do like the challenge of like great break into this space and get out again and while you're there you've got a bunch of optional objectives things to find like um, clues about you know the faction that who 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 have your troops prisoner you can also liberate some of the other prisoners and get kind of like rewards for doing that it's it's sort of like i suppose what the tanker demo in mgs2 is to um mgs2 uh except mgs5 version and the uh and the like the bulk of the game waiting for you is, is a lot better than what this is um mm. but as a kind of like a cool little slice of uh of, of stealth sandbox gameplay to show you what they've been working on to show how they'd like made these really refined stealth mechanics and contemporary feeling mechanics that the um the mgs4 did not have i think it works very successfully um mm. but i do think that it's also its reputation is also slightly overblown when the phantom pain is a lot better thoughts matthew
1: yeah i mean that's the only reason it's not on my list i've put so much time in phantom pain and that like that moves things along even more mechanically you know the world of phantom pain still has some grim stuff in it but this is you know not an easy hang given that it is quite playful in like how many different like modes and like hidden versions of it there are and ways you can kind of return to this world but still at its heart you know are some like in, you know incredibly sad sad horrible deeds but you know i can completely understand why it's on the list only it was one of my most played games of this year i've just it's sort of just been overwritten a bit by phantom pain
0: is the yeah truth. and i think that's fair i can still see why in the moment it was quite it was quite exciting um i think like weirdly yeah the dark moments in it i think they are too much they do weirdly set it apart though from phantom pain it thematically like it's sort of like yeah, uh, yeah. unrelenting it's just so horrible um like, some of the stuff that's revealed there. Like, it's, it's surprising how horrible it is. And then meanwhile, you have the strange, incongruous nature of, like, oh, Kiefer Sutherland the snake now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which I don't think ever really was a good idea. Um, I don't think that was... He added anything to it. Do you agree with that? that oh, Kiefer's, no, not yeah, at all. Like, if is. anything,
1: they you know, him being more famous and probably, well, definitely more expensive to work with meant there was, like, less snake
0: and, like, less interesting for it. yeah. I think that was a real dud decision um, yeah. especially when they, they kept the same Otticon. so just fucking get your hand you know like get David Hayter back like and then well, you can actually tell yeah, a proper story like the, t- like, yeah. the tone of this world like the voice actors were so
1: kind of tuned into it yeah and he is different like when he is in conversation you know with other
0: characters they just he just doesn't quite fit bad call in my opinion um, so yes that's that's weird about it. But um, yes, it's like, I can see why people treated this as this, this repeatable, oh, I'll do all the challenges and see what yeah. the camp is like during the day. But fuck me, the troops in this, they can see you from miles away. <laughs> um, I think it's, i think it, like I say, unreasonable, borderline unreasonable as a stealth experience. Where the fuck are you meant to hide the bodies in this? You can't dump them in boxes or anything like... You can chuck them off cliffs, I think, but fucking hell, it's so hard. Um, (laughs) And I don't know if hard necessarily equals good with Metal Gear, because ultimately I think it ends with me like chucking grenades at people and getting into gun turrets and stuff, and I'm like, well... Maybe there should be a slightly more options if you want to play this stealthily than it what has. What would the
1: boss say if she heard you
0: moaning like this about how hard <laughs> it is to be a secret agent? <laughs> yeah, oh, after it's after,
1: so hard. I just can't believe it.
0: After all she gave for this country. Um, but yeah. Um, so Ground Zeroes. Yeah, Like I didn't want to put it too high on my list because, yeah, I think it's a over- reputation, a bit much these days, but it, it was still very good. So yeah, it, it, number seven's fine. What's your number six, Matthew? My number six is Bayonetta two. My number six as well. Whoa. Yeah. There go see i've got it into my head you don't like bayonetta 2 well i played it a bit this weekend to prepare for this and i th- <laughs> I-, I think that like the way that bayonetta 3 sort of goes off the rails quite quickly and becomes this quite <laughs> wild set pc strange game This seems like... It's actually quite nice to just do a back-to-basics Bayonetta.
1: I love that a game that opens with you fighting on the back of a fighter jet, then you're on a train, then you're flying around a giant building, basically as a half-woman, half-butterfly, and you're like, yeah, this is more basic and (laughs) down-to-earth.
0: Well, relatively speaking to Bayonetta, it is. It's it's not like, which of my 20 Godzilla monsters am I going to become for this level? It's like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it just it seems quite it, i don't there is something slightly more restrained about it it's like oh i am still doing all the bayonetta combos and things i'm used to the, the mechanics the core mechanics are still super hardcore and super understandable yeah um, there are too many boss fights in this game but also matthew the, i originally played this on wii u and, like, this looks fucking nice on a Switch OLED, doesn't right, it? Right, right, um, yeah, yeah, Compared yeah. to the, that Fisher-Price screen on the Wii U, this is, like, yeah, it's, it's big boy shit. So, yes, why don't you kick off from there, Matthew?
1: I was a little cool on Bennett 2 myself at the time. I was, uh, you know, I thought one was the more kind of complex, sophisticated game. I thought they watered it down a little bit much, but actually now I've come to kind of appreciate it as I think it's a really good into to the series. I think it has wild excess that sort of defines Bayonetta and that you want from Bayonetta. I also think it's slightly gentler on the difficulty and lets you do cooler things with Bayonetta, like from the off with your abilities, like as you master her, she gets a bit more complicated, but I think the skill ceiling is is, is definitely like lowered a bit for this one. For me, it's almost like a better into it before you hit Bayonetta 1, which is a more complex tool. She can do a lot more varied things, but it's quite hard getting there hurt there and even on normal difficulty i actually find bayonetta 1 like quite a stiff challenge compared to normal difficulty on bayonetta 2 the downside to that is that a lot of this game is, is very like set pc or like a boss fight or or a kind of one-on-one encounter, there's not a lot of just pure arena-based, there are four different enemy types, and you have to kind of work out how to deal with all these things, which I think mm. Bayonetta 1 like fully explores its combat system by having a lot more of those scenarios. And like when you're fighting a big thing, it's basically like dodge its big attacks and then hit when its big eye opens. And it you don't really need as sophisticated at all as Bayonetta to do those fights. They're still exciting to watch and to do in the moment, and they end in really fun ways... Um, I like the variety of this game compared to one as well. You know, it starts off in the city, then you go to this like weird island, you're dragged down to hell. There are whole new enemy types. You fight all the kind of legions of hell who have this very distinctive look. They're all kind of made from sort of almost purple glass and. You know that's very striking, put next to, to the kind of like creepy cherubs of the of the heavenly forces. I just think it's a, a really good time. It never gets boring. It's a little bit easier, a little bit friendlier, probably is a better term than Bayonetta One. And once you're through it, you know you've still got Bayonetta One to like really get into like the more complicated stuff if you want to so yeah I just it's it's sort of a game I've definitely like warmed to
0: yeah I think that like I think that my take on this on the platinum episode was quite probably quite frustrating to people because I wasn't qualifying much about what (laughs) I why I found it so inferior to the first one um I think the first one's like uh, first of all I do like some of the colorful touches the first one has like the uh, like the space harrier minigame and um the sort of afterburner music playing in the otherwise not particularly amazing bike sequence but like yeah. <laughs> i think that it is like what you say i think that what i loved about bayonetta originally was that it took the arena 3d combat of devil may cry that mastery of being in spaces with um familiar enemy types that you can learn and then like you know just and just let you let you push that so far on a replay when you had this like really packed arsenal and you could really perfect it um i think by bayonetta 2 like you say by being so boss heavy loses some of that a little bit but um yeah i think it's still like in those moments where you are you do feel very in control of that combat system it still feels amazing it does have those moments still Mm -hmm. um yeah i think like uh, yeah it's it's just the spectacle of it is still still can still can wow me um just playing mm. it this week i just had a better time this week than i i remembered having with it back in 20 2015 when i played it you know that's basically my experience plus covid fever uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's like every five minutes it's like it does that thing where like holy music pose and then it's like big monster, angel, baby face, and then it's just (laughs) new, and it's like it's like this is a new creature. I've been fighting these for like fucking ten hours, but yeah, um, Yeah. that's quite funny. Also, it's funny. I I read a few reviews of Bayonetta two, and. I think they struggled to put their finger on what had changed massively since the first one. Um, yeah. And like I forgot that they, they do give you that power to unleash those kind of like umbral, like big attacks using like the left bu- yeah. left bumper. That's quite cool. Um, that yeah. kind of meter builds up. and It's kind of like a special meter you basically use to help kind of clear the arena if you're struggling a little bit or batter a boss a bit more. Um, I, th- I yeah.
1: think the, the really like hardcore platinum heads mark this one down quite a lot for that mechanic because right. they think the game's balanced around basically building up to just unleashing that and every fight ends with you just doing one of those attacks i kind of see that a little bit I yeah but like i mean I, you know i'm so shit at these games like you'd have to be <laughs> playing at a much better level for that criticism
0: to kick in but uh, yeah but these are people who think that witch time is like too generous and like yeah. they <laughs> don't, don't like that mechanic and if i don't have that i've got fucking nothing Um, yeah maybe it's
1: cheating a bit to like include specifically the wii u version because like a lot of this game's beauty is unlocked on switch
0: yeah it definitely is
1: yeah and on oled as well like just the, the color scheme like the deep purples and everything just look absolutely gorgeous it's one of the best looking oled games for sure
0: yeah, really nice. So yeah, like uh, I was, uh, maybe I sound like I'm softening on it a bit. But you know, I think I had bay- when we did the 2010 episode, I had Bayonetta a lot higher than number six. So this does reflect like my affections towards it, Matthew. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I think it is it is cool, and I'm glad it's like readily available on Switch. That's good. Mm. Um, what's your number five, Matthew? My number five is Dragon Age Inquisition. <laughs> That's also my number five. Whoa. <gasps> yeah, it's controversial pick for me because I never finished it. But I I was thinking of, when I reflect on. 2014 of in games the 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 40 hours i did spend playing this or 30 maybe it's 30 hours something like that i saw a lot of the landscapes a lot of the story a lot of the characters and i felt like it was still a massive part of my gaming experience of this year so yeah why don't you uh go from there
1: this is the first dragon age i properly played like i played the other ones after this So I didn't really have any connection to the world. I was a bit baffled at first, but I just wanted to play something like Next Gen that seemed to be good. And this was definitely one of the early Next Gen games that was like rated quite highly. I kind of like it in that it sort of sits between an open world game and a more linear action experience. You know, it's quite large biomes, but they feel very like handcrafted they don't quite have the sprawl of like a skyrim or oblivion they're very like gamey spaces there's a lot of like side quests infamously in this game but I actually quite like that side of the game. I quite like ticking off the activities and kind of stripping these worlds of of their things. You know, it's it's not like a a landscape that has to last me forever. There's like a finite end to this adventure, but there's also like a scale which I would kind of want from a fantasy game. You know, I like stepping into these areas. I like that the world is uh, split into very self-contained biomes it's not like a big landmass because it means that each world can be very distinctive and have like a weird fancy hook like I, I i was genuinely excited to see each new location because the art design on them and the environmental design is absolutely amazing You know, I still think of like that coastline with all the kind of basalt rock, and then you're in the weird desert and going down into all these spooky tombs, and there's like oasis shit and all this kind of stuff. Visually, it really sticks with me. I really like the central hook of the Inquisition. It's probably the main thing in this game. I think it really sells you on this sort of fantasy that you're a party, you have this role in the world, which is you are the Inquisition going out and fixing stuff. I really love the war table where you see all these missions spread across the kingdom, and then all your different advisors give you kind of different approaches. how to sort them out and that can lead to like different mission types or different outcomes or different relationships with those advisors I love the fact that you have a big castle and you can sit on a throne and kind of meet out judgement on people, I think that's really fun. They kind of bring up all these enemies who you kind of capture in the missions and then you get to sort of put them on trial and like execute them or kind of forgive them or whatever. And that, that feels like a, a, a very fun riff on the kind of sort of moral quandaries of, of you know, Bioware are so known for. You know, I like the characters enough. I didn't really have a, enough of a connection with the returning characters to know whether or not they were done great justice to. But, you know i i mixed up my party a lot i uh, there was reason to spend time with everyone i mean I'd, I'd be interested to hear the take of someone who you know was like better versed in dragon age
0: to be honest it was really well done i thought um okay. it was like so you know there, there were some cast members from origins and two like leliana was a member of the inquisition bit of it right like the actual like managing the the world side of it mm-hmm. um leliana who i never who i missed entirely on origins so i was like oh that's that's kind of strange but (laughs) it was cool seeing as i mentioned before in the rpg companions draft the um cassandra and Varric in this game who already had a pre-existing relationship so when you put them in in the party together and you heard them talking there was that tete-a-tete which was nice and then does the really ambitious thing of making hawk from dragon age 2 a part of the story um you know a player created character a player shaped character you can sort of change his attitude and that would affect his dialogue choices so he you know it could fundamentally be your hawk who was in Dragon age two um and that was really cool it's like I'm gonna go meet my old main character on the you know the battlements of my my base and talk to him about what he's been up to that's that's mm. rad I think um so yeah I think it really worked as a a sort of bit of dragon age fan service I think that now people have a lot of affection for this game because it was the last great bioware game really wasn't it and so yeah. i think people hang on to this and like you say it was very next gen it was like when the dragon fights kicked off it was mega cool um it wasn't the most it wasn't the deepest rpg to play by any means It was very much like you know your dudes just sort of basically like an action rpg um mm. but the the experience of journeying across a world felt pure ipg to me and they put so much effort into that companion dialogue that it really brought it to life and when you come off of dragon age 2 which was set in one city over 10 years to cover up the fact they made it in 18 months the sprawl here felt just really really incredible i think it gave people a proper snapshot of the world that was only ever really hinted at in those first two games so yeah i think it really works as a, mm. an extension of dragon age it's its affections are, you know, are well-deserved, Matthew. So, yeah, I think that, like, um, even though it's a slow starter, people always joked about get out of the hinterlands um, because, yeah, you know... Yeah,
1: I didn't really feel that. There are a lot of collectibles in this game, but, like, they're put in interesting places and there's, like, lit- weird little lore and Everything feels quite bespoke to me. You know, it doesn't feel like you're doing, like, the same Skyrim cave, like, 30 times over, you know? And that's that's the stuff that kind of kills like, open-world fantasy for me a lot. It's like, oh, not another fucking cave. I, yeah. yeah, like, that balance, like, never impacted me. I can remember doing the Hinterlands and being
0: like, people had a problem with this. Like, it's genuinely fine. Uh, I, I think the way to treat it is that, like, once you can go to a different place, you do mix it up, and then you kind of return later on, maybe, when you yeah. feel you so, like it's You're meant to, I think, like, to to sort of dip into places and dip out of places and yeah. see what's going on, come back and fight a dragon later when you feel equipped for it. Like, it's... It's meant to be that kind of, like, oh, I'll go to this different open world today kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, um, and when the story yeah. beats come, like, they're pretty good, you know? Like, you, yeah. get, you you go to this, like, big
1: party in this, like, palace, and it's all full of, kind of, like, courtly intrigue. That's great. You know, that's a really cool set piece. I just... I don't know what people are complaining about. And honestly, compared to, like, Mass Effect or Andromeda, this is, like, a fucking Edge 10. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think this is yeah this is like really well liked now. But um yeah. I think the the only people who ever complained about Dragon Age were people who wanted it to be like basically you know a sort of Neverwinter Nightsy kind of like RPG combat experience that 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 the you know the origins was, and then it was compromised a bit on consoles. And I think that. Those people were maybe not as in- enamoured with it, but um, that was mm. quite a hard thing to ask of a, a game that was going to sell most of its copies on console in yeah. 2014. Um, so yeah, but this was not a big success for nothing. Um, its reputation is yeah, well deserved. Uh, going to play know- Divinity: Original Sin. That's that game. Yeah, basically that and that was this year, wasn't it? So um, yeah. yeah. What's your number four, Matthew? My number four is uh, <laughs> Kalimba. <laughs> Oh yeah, Matthew Castle Xbox Classic. That was it. The best. Was it the highest ranking exclusive from this year on Xbox for you, Matthew? We
1: gave it a ten in XN. Yeah. Wow, nice. I think Kalimba is one of the great overlooked games of like the last 10 years I, I genuinely think it's amazing puzzle platformer where you play it as two totem pole segments sitting on top of each other's head you kind of control them in unison so they're sort of walking along as one unit but you can also jump to sort of split them apart and then they can end up on like a lower and an upper track. So you've got to imagine these two little things walking along the top and the bottom of the screen but you're controlling them simultaneously so you know where one goes left they both go left and all the puzzles kind of revolve around either kind of positioning them so like you can do something on the bottom without fucking the guy on the top or vice versa or you can flip the colors of them and then there are obstacles so like if there's some pink goo up top you flip the colors so the pink totem piece is up top it basically has the effect of playing a co-op game by yourself in that you're having to look at two platforming runs at once and kind of balancing them up like taken slowly It's just a good puzzle game, but you do find yourself getting more confident and taking it at speed. It's a very replayable game. Like at the end of the level, you're judged on uh, like number of deaths, the 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 little collectible trinkets of light that you collect, and speed. So there is like a speed running element to this, and you begin to realise that actually the levels are designed to be taken at quite a clip. Um, Some of them almost have that kind of classic Mario Brothers level magic where. If you hold right, you'll find that they've almost choreographed your movement with the level itself, and you just have to worry about jumping, which is a a really delightful thing. I love it when a game sort of doubles as almost like an auto-runner. That, to me, speaks of just very, very precise level design. Beautiful visual style, very simplistic but incredibly sharp. Little sort of like motes of triangular light uh, which come out of everything, which gives it this very sort of angular, but also kind of fizzy, magical feel, which which is very cool. The music is very, very funky. I have no idea how to classify the genre of music. Um, I thought it might be like some kind of like energetic like polka music but i don't think that's right it's 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 very mad um all the collectibles are like auto-tuned to the music so whenever you get them it's like the it sounds like you're getting them at the right time in the level it's 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 very choreographed in that way which i'm really drawn to Great co-op mode, which takes the already co-op feeling single player and adds more totem pieces for two people to play. It's only like a stretch of 10 levels or so, the co-op, but me and Kate played this on LXM and had like such a laugh. That's probably where the 10 out of 10 came from. And it's all hosted by this really cool bear called Ho Bear the Meta Bear who sort of talks in, like, fourth-wall-breaking comments, which I would normally roll my eyes at, but this is a really good example of it done well. Just him sort of... He's got this very husky voice, which I haven't heard this voice actor in any other game, so it's got this very, like, distinct vibe to him. And... he's sort of like aware that you're not there to see him and you just want to get on with it and he seems quite put out by his whole role as like the narrator and tutorial guy. It's, It's just so weird and odd and funny and incredibly tight as a platformer. It makes me sad to this day when you look at like it's Metacritic and it's just like you know, IGN giving it like a 7 and being like, yeah, it's all right. It doesn't sound like anything special. And it's like, this feels great. And it sounds fucking amazing. Like, you fools. What is wrong with you? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Dumb. Why did they release it in the Christmas holidays? What a fucking
0: stupid time to release a game. So just like, this is just such a weird era for Microsoft. This is such a (laughs) strange time. Like, it's this game has the profile of like uh, Xbox Live Summer of Arcade um, game right um but like uh, but it was just released by itself into like a void basically to be ignored um and that's tough to be to to be completely unappreciated uh yeah it's that's tough like (laughs) again i don't know why this isn't on game pass they own the rights to it right they it's the microsoft published game, so lots of people listen to this podcast and go and get hotel dusk and play it
1: and that's great but i'd like if, if, if you're going to play anything that I recommend, go and play Kalimba. I'm just interested to see if I'm. Like, am I just completely mad and missing the mark on this one? Or I swear it's more people would love it if they played it. But
0: <laughs> Yeah, play, and that and the Centennial Case. That's, uh, that, that's. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's more of an acquired taste. <laughs> this, is, this is just
0: a good platformer. Who doesn't love a good sharp platformer? Eight quid as well. That's not much. Oh, is it? Come on. Uh, but then I haven't bought it and I really trust your opinion. So like, that's <laughs> maybe I'm part of the problem here. Um, Kalimba. Very good. All right, mm-hmm. cool. Very good. Like the, your- the
1: worst thing, if you type Kalimba review on YouTube, you won't get anything for the game. You'll just get reviews of the Kalimba instruments. <laughs> and then I realise that Kalimba YouTube is like a whole thing and it's pretty odd. <laughs> That's
0: tough, yeah. They've, they've done their best to bury the reputation of this game, Matthew. Um, Kalimba, fuck it out. my number four is south park the stick of truth oh not on your list no so i i love this game so much so i'm really up and down on south park generally as like a you know a a sort of a, a source of interest i've had like several phases of being into it and this happened to drop at a time where I was getting big into it again. Um, maybe it was powered by the game, to be honest. But like, I think that's around the time they started serialising South Park and it led to a few interesting seasons before I think it got slightly long in the tooth and they ditched the idea, um, doing these kind of season-long plot lines, essentially. Um, this basically was like what I wanted a Simpsons game to be. <laughs> but, I, but, but even though it was South Park, I, I would take it, damn it, um, because... Mm. Someone needed to do this with a with an animated show to kind of basically like let you explore the entire town in which it's set, let you interact with all its different characters um, in fun ways. Um, and here they kind of presented that South Park world via a sort of like the kids playing a high fantasy game. And so you were playing this turn based RPG off the back of that. Um and it cast cast different characters, including kind of Cartman as like key figures in that in that sort of journey uh, let you go through all the different houses of the characters and because obviously south Park's animation style was very simple, you could basically just recreate one to one what the the world was um mm. and that was a great magic trick um and they used that to kind of like Ram in just so many references to bits of the show's history. South Park had famously been treated as just quite quite but poorly in the video game space. So I quite enjoyed that tower defense game they put on Xbox. That was all right. And so yeah, here here was the game that was the Matt and Trey endorsed game. um Worked on um by made by Obsidian. Worked on somewhat as well, I think, by because um, it was picked up by Ubisoft because THQ collapsed. So. I think that Ubisoft did quite a lot of work to kick it into shape is my understanding, so mm. yeah i was I was just hugely fond of this it was it reviewed really well. it was like the a rare super funny game um and it sort of didn't do any of the South Park humor things that I find quite annoying. It was like it really kind of got on the right side of me tonally, um and so yeah, I was very fond of it, Matthew, what did you make of this one i finished this one, I must admit,
1: I sort of started playing it. Liked it, liked the humour, liked the battle system enough. I can't remember why I stopped playing it. Maybe it's like fatigue from feeling like I had to mine it for like every joke and constantly do laps of all the places. I, was, I became sort of paranoid about missing stuff and missing jokes and missing hidden things. And maybe I just made it a bit too drawn out for me. Maybe I should have just ploughed on with the main storyline because a lot of this game, when people talk about it, it does go over my head a bit because there's just loads of cool stuff I've not seen in it. So um,
0: yeah, it's kind of on my need to revisit list you won't revisit this that doesn't sound plausible to me but you you never know it could happen (laughs) well it's probably quite a good fit for the switch actually um because you know i played it at the time on pc which is uh, kind of strange to think of me sat at my desk playing this that just doesn't seem right does it um seems like a kind of console game it's very very simple as rpg's go as well but yeah the way it would weave in things like how timmy was the fast travel system i was <laughs> like just quite quite funny um yeah, yeah it just had it just had every character at every location you would want in it really mm. um really nicely done and like i never quite got into the sequel because it it sort of overcomplicated the combat but i I feel like i would probably enjoy it if i just sat down and played it properly but Mm. this was this was basically like the mario and luigi superstar saga approach to combat right yeah 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 and like but it was but why not rip that off it was like you know it's trad turn based but with a bit of um real-time interactivity perfect i think so uh Mm. Yeah, real good, Matthew, this. Um, yeah, still a, a massive favourite of mine. Not sure I'd ever revisit it, because you kind of see all the jokes once and you've kind of done it, I think. It's, well,
1: that's I've why just... I can revisit it, because I haven't seen all the jokes.
0: So That's no. true, but that's exactly why I should play the, um, uh, the uh, what's it called, the Angered Butthole or something? What's it called? I don't know. The su- Something like Fractured that. Fractured Butthole. <laughs> yeah, angered Butthole <laughs> is something. Ang- that's, that sounds much worse. Angered Butthole does sound like a kind of like Pseudo 51 boss or something um, in one of his <laughs> games uh What's your number three, Matthew?
1: My number three is Dank Gang Romper Trigger Happy Havoc.
0: Is oh, it higher we... on yours? <laughs> no, it's not. Where, was that this year it came out for? This is an older series than this for some reason. But it was, but when it came out on Vita in the UK. Ah, gotcha. I don't think this has appeared
1: on our previous lists. If it has, no. apologies. No, I don't think it has. No. I've definitely talked about it, though. This is um a, a sort of Ace Attorney ish game in that it revolves around a trial system. You are a group of teenagers who are enrolled into Hope's Peak Academy, which is a school for incredibly elite students. Every student in there is the ultimate at something. You have the ultimate programmer, fanfic creator, fashionista, moral compass, baseball star, pop sensation, clairvoyant, and so on. You are the ultimate lucky student in that you were picked from everyone else randomly to, to go to this school, so you are not an exceptional person. You go to this school and everyone is locked in. They are told that the only way to escape the school is to to, to murder a fellow student and get away with it, which means killing a fellow student and then surviving a trial system. If you go through the trial and everyone picks the wrong suspect, they're all put to death and you escape. High stakes game of life and death. So Ace Attorney, but with this extra wrinkle of if you fail the case, you die. People start murdering other people, so every level is basically you investigating the case and then building... Building up to this trial, which has a slight like manic arcade energy to it. So unlike Ace Attorney, where you just present evidence, here you like load evidence as truth bullets into a gun, and then you have to shoot um, the evidence of the lies that they contradict. It's a bit much. This game. Um, I know lots of people have really bounced off it. It's very anime. I bounce off a lot of it. It's got some really gross characters, some very like sexualized characters who are just a bit creepy and full on and constantly screeching in the dialogue. But underneath that, it has really, really good murder cases. Um, I just really like the murder mystery... Um, construction. I think the actual kind of like locked room murders or mysterious murders that occur are, are stronger than than those in Ace Attorney. And unpicking them and solving them and beating them in these in these very energetic trial sequences. That this thing's really really good fun. It's a, a very very different stylistic riff on something I really love. The kind of creator of this, Kazutaka Kodaka, is a big like crime buff. He's working on a new game comes out this year called Rain Code, which is another like murder mystery thing. I interviewed him once and we talked about Japanese crime fiction and like authors that inspired him and it was just really cool that he's kinda of pulling from a lot of the stuff that I really love too and so I can completely understand why these games kind of connect with me on this level, but I fully sympathize if you pick this up and just cannot stand very hyperactive tone of it.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. I've bought all of these on Switch a couple of years ago, or like a year and a half ago when it came mm-hmm. out, um the box version. Still meaning to play these. They're just I know they're long undertakings. But I would like to play them, Matthew, so I can have informed takes on this, um, a la the Ace Attorney episode we did, you know, at some point. That'd be nice to do, wouldn't it? So, yeah. um, Yeah, it's cool. Like, I'm interested, like, what made you, at the time, pick these up? Did you have your eye on them for a long time? Then it was like, oh, they're finally coming to a format I've got. Like, what was your experience of engaging with them at this time? Not at all. Like I, I, you know, if
1: I kept little eye on PlayStation, I kept no eye on like Vita and right. PSP and what was happening in that space. I either overheard someone in the office talking about it, or I just happened to read a review online and it said it's a trial game, it's a crime game, it's a mystery game, like Ace Attorney. I was like, how the hell have I not played this? Like my favourite genre of thing. Right, right. I think technically Dank and Romper One and Two both came out in the UK in 2014 because they were yeah quite late porting them story-wise it makes more sense to start at the beginning and also like two is even more vile in some of its characters um than one
0: so if you didn't like one you really won't like two this is like devil's advocate question is the vile stuff weirdly part of its appeal for
1: some people the second one has this like sort of sadomasochistic relationship between this like cartoon bear and this cartoon rabbit which is like just very sinister and Ugh. not not my deal at all Dog. um but i know <laughs> that people <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do I have to say that out loud? <laughs> I mean... No, 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 that's fine. You can carry uh, on. Imagine <laughs> well, if I was like, that I'm really into, and I now have a tattoo of them on my chest. <laughs> but some people are really into these characters. Like it's, I, I think it's the characters, probably more than the mysteries, that have um, led to this series' success. You know, there's an anime, and there's lots of spin-off stuff and merchandise and toys. I think people are just really into the universe. Okay
0: yeah that's fair enough um yeah always like to hear you talk about this matthew and uh yeah it's uh, <laughs> pleased i asked about the curse stuff now i think i got some good content out of doing that Oh, that's um,
1: horrible.
0: Oh. no go on yeah there's some really off stuff in this game <laughs> yeah yeah uh interesting i wonder if that that transgressive nature is pro- like you say is probably the reason some people like it or think it's kind of key to its tone in some way yeah because... the performatively horny you would be into it Okay, oh dear. Yeah, we know how we feel about those people on our yeah. podcast. Um <laughs> Okay, my number three, and I think this is where I start to like probably break the logic of the list I put in the best games of the generation. Um okay. I think this is where it starts to get a bit fucked up. You have to excuse me, like, you know, I can't keep maintain a hundred percent consistency on all my opinions. So mm-hmm. my number three is PT Um playable teaser, the uh Silent Hills prologue that was released. Uh, No one knowing what it was, and then people unpicking its secrets and discovering at the end a teaser starring Norman Reedus for a game called Silent Hills that was to be um, partly worked on by Guillermo del Toro, uh, Yunji Ito, and Hideo Kojima. Uh, You know, a a long-awaited, I guess, like, return to Silent Hills since Downpour, the last proper entry in the series quote unquote that never came out and would die as a kind of like a dream really and I don't think ever really I don't ever really believe it entered active production to be honest um, I think it was always like a, a you know a sat there in pre-production is a cool thing to happen Silent Hills Ooh. but this this teaser people are very familiar with it but it's been quite a long time now since I've talked about it on the podcast so you know excuse me while I talk about it again um, <laughs> you wake up in this this room and you are walking through this identical hallway this entranceway to a house that has that has you know has had a family in it at some point and something terrible has happened and you are trying to uncover what exactly happened while contending with this this ghost figure um well actually uncovering what happened is not entirely true because you do that in the first loop you kind of figure out what happened based on the very creepy radio broadcast and then you're really just trying to get out of this loop because when you go to the end of the corridor. Um, you are back at the start of the corridor again and it loops and loops and loops and how the fuck do you break this cycle while you are being haunted by something Um, and the vibes are extremely bad and the exact nature of how you get out of out of that space is so abstract in terms of how how you figure out the puzzle it was almost like designed as this community kind of like trial and error thing of, oh, I, I did this and this worked. And so I was able to like enter a new loop where something slightly different happens in the corridor, that sort of thing, until eventually people kind of like brute force their way through it. It didn't take them long to do that. But um, it's a, it's a really rare example of a kind of media event where you can create something super opaque and unexpected and then people are wowed by the end result. This just doesn't happen that much anymore where you can go into something not knowing what it is um because Ooh. we're in the age of everything being over-reported and that sort of thing but this game truly is that because some of the ways in which the ghost that haunts you are you know will, will play out differently on different playthroughs meant that there was a massively unpredictable element to this to this experience um and as a free <laughs> demo i think it was just one of my defining experiences of this generation and certainly this year it was like i took a ps4 home from the office to play this because i just had to see what the deal was mm. um because it was obviously it was never released on anything else and i just think it was surprising incredible um and really replayable too i probably i think i probably played this for about 20 hours all in like i've had a great wow. time just some yeah i've had a great time on picking this over the years and it's spooky nature like the unpredictable nature of it never quite dissipates um just because you never exactly know what she's gonna do on a on a on another playthrough um where mm. she's gonna appear and like um yeah, just genuinely terrifying and unsettling horror experience that I think like, um, it, you know, even to the, to this day has left a massive impact on that genre.
1: When we talked about like horror films in the horror film episode, you were always looking for something that was going to really fuck you up. Yeah. Uh, I think this this is probably that. I wonder if this is set to set too high a standard for horror things in general.
0: For yeah. You. Yeah, that might be true. Barbarian does a little bit of this I think. Like um that thing of like you don't exactly know what you're going to get just from the first 20 minutes, you know what mm. I mean? Um but yeah, to to fuck you up on this level is very very rare doesn't really happen that much yeah
1: um, absolutely terrifying i didn't get it into the same level as you did i got slightly like annoyed by trying to work out how to make the game do certain things and to uh, quote unquote complete it all that like whispering the name down the phone into your mic jareth jareth,
0: <laughs> jareth yeah
1: people thought you had to say jareth the name of the dude from the labyrinth <laughs> Well, no, but that did work. That was a thing. Yeah, like it, would, it, it would make the it phone. It wasn't. Ring. It can't be that. It can't. Like, it must just sound like whatever it's meant to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just me sitting on my my fucking sofa in my rented house, going, "Jareth, Jareth, into microphone."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that that is also what I did, and then like I did also. I wonder, don't I play this too much? Because I remember like being drunk with my mate David in um, Cardiff and being like playing this and just going. Uh, Lisa Lisa into the microphone trying to get the ghost to appear and then like um and then yeah just uh just going Jareth 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 over and over (laughs) again thinking this cannot be what the designers intended my experience of this game to become but yet here I am shouting Jareth while I've had like four IPAs do you know what I mean (laughs) (laughs) that seems wrong somehow
1: when the ghost did finally appear and kind of in my memory she rushed towards us we saw something at the end of the corridor and then it sped towards us and both me and Catherine like properly, properly screamed and then I had to go and explain to my housemates that we were playing a scary game right. and it
0: wasn't anything like bad that they had to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, she, really, she really is terrifying as well. Yeah. She is a horrible, beautifully animated creation. Like, just truly nasty in a way that is like unlike any other video game enemy. It, what a shame it's... as well that they took out the mgs5 the phantom pain item where you could drop her into the battlefield and she fucked soldiers up what a shame they didn't put that in the finished game you know oh man do you ever see the do you ever see the footage of that where they oh yeah it's like i think it was at tgs or something but they were just yeah they would just deploy this like you know how there's like the i think you could put like fake soldiers down or fake snake down it was like that but would be lisa from pt and the soldiers would just run away terrified (laughs) really cool idea but yeah uh yeah hard work this this is the video game equivalent of the cursed video from ring very much so um and yeah just like imitated so many times but never bettered um yeah but i do love that this kind of like this was you know i think outlast kicked it off but this was like the vanguard of that new first person horror kind of game that would you know racy 7 would take inspiration from this and stuff Mm. like it was it was hugely important um lost to time a little bit but certainly not forgotten and remade many times you can you can experience this in different forms these days it's the original might be gone kind of but it's it's still around if you want to find it Hmm. um what's number two matthew here's an odd one the talos principle wow i mean i remember this being a big deal at the time like for for that kind of like indie sized game but i'm surprised to hear on your list still i was looking back over the list of games i'd sort of forgotten about
1: this as an experience but then when i read its name i was like oh my god i spent so much time playing that and it all kind of rushed back to me a first person puzzle game made by crow team who are the serious sam creators very strange experience of playing this because it kind of looks like a serious sam game It's, you know, it's a first person perspective, very sort of like overblown, not photorealistic looking kind of historical settings like in Egyptian columns and, um, you know, ancient Greek temples and things slightly has that sort of air of 3D assets you've bought, which Serious Sam had. It always looked like a game that was slightly kind of pieced together to me. Um, so it looks like a Serious Sam game. You half expect, like, those dudes with bombs for hands suddenly rush out of every doorway, but nothing like that happens. It's an empty world. You are a android exploring it, and walking around these, yeah, seemingly historical settings, solving portal-ish puzzles. Without the portals, I'm talking about, like, pressure switch puzzles and, like, light refraction puzzles. I guess just physics puzzles in a 3D space. Very quietly, systematically ticking them off a list and earning keys that unlock uh, other areas with more puzzles in them. And it, it never has, like a particular mechanic, like, all of its own. I think about the most complicated it gets is it it gets uh, levels where you can kind of, like, record yourself doing an action and then work alongside yourself. So there's kind of like, I don't know, is that like Braid? or I've seen other games do that, kind of you working alongside a kind of an, an echo of yourself anyway. All the while, a strange godlike voice gives out these mad sort of religious decrees and instructions and sort of guides you through this world. I guess the kind of GLaDOS stand-in for this world. There's a very deep philosophical edge to this about sort of AI, whether AI can sort of have a soul or kind of free. Free will That's delivered by these computer terminals, which I'll admit, like, I never fully understood. This was quite a chewy, full-on game. I'm a little bit too dumb for, like, 20% of this game. But the pure puzzleness of it, I, I really, really connected with. I played this for tens and tens of hours. It has all these self-contained puzzle rooms where you're kind of moving objects about, but then almost like in the witness where you realize there's like a bigger picture stuff you begin to realize there are maybe like levels to these puzzles beyond them or ways that like one self contained puzzle room might be able to influence another puzzle room and kind of digging into that level is really fun i just i just remember it being like the witness very low-key very chill time you know there's no time pressure there's no stress in executing things you know there's a lot of physics puzzles but you're not wrestling with like weird video game physics everything's very well behaved everything kind of clicks into place exactly where you need it and it's it's more just about like giving you the space and time to just come up with the solution and work out how something's meant to work i just really really lost myself in this world and it does build to like quite a quite an interesting conclusion i'd say a forgotten gem it was sort of forgotten to me (laughs) for a long time But, yeah, I remember thinking this was just really top-notch.
0: Yeah, I remember this being from that kind of, like, I guess new class of mid-sized indie that sort of Devolver brought in. This is a Devolver game, isn't it? I actually don't remember who published it. I think it is. But anyway, like, you know, um, it's, um, yeah, like, it sort of looked, it's you know, it's pretty high fidelity. It doesn't look like a blockbuster as such, but it looks like, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's bigger than an indie game would have looked five years before it, you know what I mean? Like, it's, or you know, three or four years before it. It's... More elaborate. I do remember people really liking this. Getting aches, I think, across the board from people. Um, I think it's got quite a big fan base these days. Did they make a sequel as well? Uh definitely an
1: expansion.
0: Right okay I should play this I've got it on I think I can play it on Steam Deck. I love
1: puzzle games but I sometimes find 2D puzzle games of which more puzzle games tend to be almost a little too like low-key that I can get a bit sleepy playing them. You can almost imagine this game being 2D and watched from the top down but just being in that world is just a little bit more engaging.
0: All right well I'm gonna definitely put this somewhere to playlist, Matthew and it's uh surprising entry considering uh, quite a number of nintendo games in my uh kind of like maybe still not come up on your list so yeah i've only got what space for one yeah okay interesting <laughs> um so you come to my number two which is wolfenstein the new order ah. um i put down two i wrote down two words in my notes here matthew defiantly single player that's kind of how i describe (laughs) this that's that's what i remember of this game at the time is like you know there was just this on rush to create the next big multiplayer thing this was the game that was no we're a first person single player only big narrative driven game set in this alternate reality where the nazis have won and um you know europe basically has to be liberated the second game would be like about america being liberated from the nazis basically and You being BJ Blazkowicz, this, uh, you know, very um, sort of powerful but empathetic figure who knows right from wrong, wants to basically fuck the Nazis up for everything they've done, which is, um, you know, an empowering position to be in as a player. Really exciting. This spares no, you know, you know, pulls no punches on the Nazis. They have their throats slit. They are, you know, gunned down. They are absolutely brutalized they get exactly what they deserve that's incredibly cathartic to play um but this is a game that's got a lot of levity to it as well like a really good sense of humor that you might compare to something like inglorious bastards but slightly has its own sort of like take on it it's like just ever so slightly aware of its own heightened reality and is a bit tongue-in-cheek and you know has room for like fun dialogue and that sort of thing i think like what is great about this game is that there's quite a lot of variety to the levels i think everyone kind of remembers the sort of like nazi museum level matthew um the nazis on the moon thing that people Mm. remember that but you know there's a level where you break into a prison there's a level where you fight like a giant mech there's um just a a huge amount of variety to it with this really good feeling shooting um and yeah like genuinely compelling compelling narrative element to it so Really just really great fun still. And I think this first one feels more complete than the second one does, which feels like hobbled slightly by the inconsistent difficulty of that second one. This one feels yeah. spot on. The normal difficulty here just feels spot on to me. Guns feel great. Just a great World War Two shooter with a sci-fi twist to it. Um, and a slightly strange um <laughs> pick which of these buddies um you want to be pals with element and the other one will something terrible will happen to him um mm. kind of like the kind of branching storyline element to it just really really good really complete one of the most complete feeling single player shooter experiences of the generation
1: I, I think the reason i haven't included it in my list is just i think i may have conflated it a little bit with the problems i had with two and uh, maybe that's unfair but like I love the world. I love the set pieces. I love just the the like the horror of the villains. Like they're so grotesque and they really get mangled up. The the Nazi lady in this is particularly vile. Um, I just the shooting's never like it's always felt good, but it's never really taken off for me because I've always found the difficulty a little bit stiff. But I don't know if that's just two and I'm mixing that in with this, but. That was sort of my memory of this one too. I think
0: this is about right, truthfully. Okay. Like, I've, I've played through half of it this week ahead of this episode. right? Um, and I, I, you know, on normal mode and like, it sort of, it has the, th- the same thing that um, the second one has, that duality of stealth and action. And you can try and stealth it. And then, you know, you try and take out basically the like, commanders in each area and then right or the captains because they can call in for help if you take them out then it suddenly becomes a lot easier to clear out in a more violent way so mm. i i personally really like that system and think that the levels are quite well designed for it but i do remember that being a lot harder in the second one yeah um, yeah
1: maybe maybe that's what i'm thinking of and that's unfair i definitely think the first one i much prefer the first one to the second one in terms of like variety of set pieces where you go i remember the f- the, the second one being like quite a drag and its cutscenes were so fucking long like, it really fell in love with its own, like, voice and world, which is very specific, I'll give it that, but I just thought it was a bit too much of it. I thought the first one was a, a, a bit more sort of fleet-footed.
0: Well, it's just right there on Game Pass, so... Um, yeah. I reckon, like, I actually, I've forgotten enough of it that a replay was genuinely just, you know, just a great... It's been great fun. I've been really enjoying it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this was, like a purely enjoyable experience from the time. Like it's sort of like, uh, there's only really one all time favorite on my list. um, And that is going to be the game I'll talk about shortly. But this was very close. Um, Like, I think it was like an eight bordering on a nine. That was kind of this game. Um, So yeah, really fond of it all these years later, still well worth a replay. Um, and has, yeah, dated very well because it's not like people are making loads of these kinds of games these days linear first person shooters that are single player um, so yeah has t- st- stood the test of time incredibly well what's your number one Matthew?
1: my number one is Mario Kart
0: 8 hey there it is um, <laughs> <Do-do-do-do-do-do-do>. <laughs> take that Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze um, Like
1: so Donkey Kong Tropical <laughs> Freeze couldn't ever appear because it does, it does me too much psychic damage <laughs> right uh-huh. okay <laughs> So, yeah, bad news for Donkey Kong. Smash Brothers this year, absolutely fantastic game. But I just, I never got into the multiplayer with it. I I didn't have, I didn't really have anyone to play it with. Like it just, it just didn't stick with me, you know? And
0: I feel like I just moved a bit beyond
1: Smash Brothers at that point.
0: It just, it just died on Wii U. It just like, it was like for no one because no one had one. Like it was, Uh, I never played it. It's a better Smash Brothers than Brawl for sure. But,
1: you know, I was on an Xbox Mac. No, you know, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't playing it in the office. You know, the other games I played with my brother at home, I just don't have a relationship with, I don't have a true relationship with Smash Brothers, really. So it would just be false of me to put it in a heart list. Although I loved Little Mac in it. Very, very difficult to play as, but I really liked his little powerful KO punch. I thought that was great. Anyway. Well,
0: well, Ultimate came along. That's the thing. Like, it just completely re... You know, there's no need to ever go back to this version of this game. That's the thing, you know.
1: It's sort of the same thing, I guess. I don't know. Like, the 3DS one was great. Anyway, Mario Kart 8. That's the number one. That's the nice. one I've anointed. I feel like this is this is basically just what I needed Mario Kart to do. Mario Kart Wii, one of the great disappointments of all time, I think. In the Wii and DS era, we had this sort of like new style came out of Nintendo, a very sort of like stripped back, spare looking sort of first party games. You might call it like the Mii aesthetic, you know, kind of stripped down functional very much playing on, like, Wii Sports and, like, very family-friendly, inoffensive. Matches some games perfectly. I thought when they kind of applied it to Mario Kart Wii, which felt like a very sort of, like unloved game to me. It didn't explode on the screen. It wasn't visually exciting, like music wise, I thought it was quite middling. Like there was it just it just didn't come alive. I thought this is a series that needs a bit more love. After that, very, very safe, very low energy Mario Kart. This just like rediscovered the big screen fun of that series. Mainly just the really boisterous and physically huge tracks that you were on like they were just so so overwhelmingly exciting to look at you know partly due to the anti-grav which isn't really an interesting mechanic in itself but it just gave them an invitation to make all these impossible spaces driving up the waterfall and shy guy falls or like you know, see Peach's castle, but it's upside down in Mario Circuit. And you know, on top of that, you had like really loving recreations of like older tracks. Um, I think the N64 Rainbow Road, like the fact that they took it and turned it into this like single lap thing, like it's an absolutely iconic track. Really, really pops in this game. I love the tracks which were just one course that you kind of went down, like Mount Mount Wario. I think is an all timer. Just has the visual invention and like wit and fun of a Mario Galaxy. You know, which I just don't think you could say of Mario Kart Wii at all. Um, obviously in all that you've got the beautiful drifting, like that interplay of classic Mario Kart weapons, all the little like animation touches which kind of created this great like meme economy. You know, obviously the the kind of Luigi hard stare and all that. But there's there's thousands of these moments. It's just a really like lively loved game. But for me, I, I just think the track selection is where this like lives and dies. And the majority of these are winners. You know, and you know. Besides the actual track design itself, just as sort of visual spaces to be, and I just I found this game so alive. It just looks amazing on the TV. We played loads of it in the office. This was a game we played split screen on O and M. You know, during some quite grim times. This 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 one stuck stuck the landing. So I think it's the best Mario Kart by distance. I can sort of understand the sort of fear of trying to do another one <laughs> yeah
0: it sort of like felt like a definitive mario kart on consoles had been a long time coming uh, on home consoles had been a long time coming like you know the the ds one i absolutely loved um 3ds what i liked uh yeah. i know that double dash split people down the middle i know that you know the wii one i didn't like much like you i just thought was kind of a you know i get why it existed and why it was the way it was but you know it didn't feel like it was for me this was yeah. this was it this was the pure you know hd mario kart looked amazing great tracks um yeah just like just fantastic just yeah. uh just really loved it the only reason it's not on my list is i really did play this a lot more on switch where i felt like just the nature of the switch Lends itself so well to enjoying this as a multiplayer experience yeah. that that defined it for me. Whereas I just never had anyone to play with on Wii U. That's it was it.
1: Like, yeah, this one makes the cut for the reason Smash Brothers didn't. You know, it, yeah.
0: it just it was the right game, right time, right
1: place. You know, playing with joe and kate like that was a you know we always had three players it was very very easy to enlist someone from cvg or whatever just really really good times maybe think of it as a switch game that's perfectly fine i think either way it remains from release it's just one of the best looking nintendo games of all time um the soundtrack is fucking unreal like these big bands you just hear everyone fucking jamming out on these tracks (laughs) the n64 rainbow road that should just be the theme tune to every game show on tv ever it's just so powerfully like 80s oh it's so good i love this
0: game what an absolute like fucking you know punch of stuff was going on with like just an amazing like array of nintendo games coming out but getting kind of ignored by the wider populace because the wii u had just not done well (laughs) like what a shame like this is like probably on paper one of the best nintendo years ever right like uh a new yeah. smash bros a new mario kart beloved entries in those series bayonetta 2 and yeah and donkey kong tropical freeze that's like a really fucking strong um yeah your four games just yeah just but ignored in favor of you know it's... yeah just yeah it's tricky and you, you wonder about switch
1: too like obviously it won't have this advantage of you know a, 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 a library of amazing but underplayed things to kind of dip back into yeah you know, short of re-releasing all these games again but come on really
0: well, it seems. Yeah, what seems more likely is the reason that a lot of those teams have been so quiet is because they are preparing for this new console. But um, we would hope so. We'll soon. We'll soon see, won't we? okay great that's your number one matthew so that's your list done my number one is alien isolation did you expect this to be at the top of my list
1: i i definitely expected it to be in the list and um i hope you don't mind that it's not in mine
0: <laughs> no no not not at all and i hope you don't mind that mario kart's not in mine so it's, uh, it's okay. all good we'll go our separate ways and everything will be okay um yeah so this was quite high of my games of the generation i don't know where i put it but um creative assembly's console team Uh, basically adapted alien, not aliens or any of the other entries in the series into a first-person horror-based experience where an incredibly intelligent alien xenomorph kind of um, follows you around, tracks you down um, and behaves dynamically. So you can't exactly predict what it's going to do next. Um, Incredibly compelling as an idea. Um, What I thought was going to be a six-hour kind of like truncated horror experience um, was actually like more like 20 hours. Just massive game where they made use of that ai in every single way um, that you can imagine Um, they built this analog kind of sci-fi world based on that first game there are no pulse rifles in this and it's you know it's firmly set in the kind of like in the world that ridley scott presents in alien and with all those limitations in mind i think that's like a key part of its magic when it gives you weapons it gives you very sparing amounts of those weapons and you have to use them in quite canny ways in order to sort of succeed you are not only contending with an alien you are occasionally dealing with human enemies you are dealing with working joes he's very scary um kind of like uh your androids who come after you obviously androids play a key role in the um sort of alien fiction and whether they're good or bad or how they behave and whether whether they'll betray you that sort of thing very scary presences chasing after you in the corridors of this game and then yeah you never forget about the alien you get periods where the alien is not with you and you 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 deliberately you know are away from it and then when it comes back it has all that more impact because you're like oh fuck here it is again that's a key part of the arc of this game um you'll make daring escapes you'll make really kind of like risky maneuvers to try and survive you will blast a load of fire at an alien at the alien just to like buy yourself a moment where you're like oh thank god i'm spared from it for just a little while i think it's easy to perceive how intelligent this alien is as unfair which i think is where like some of the critical divide came from for this game from a couple of us reviewers i think that it asks a lot of you in that respect of just how, how intelligent it can be. But I think the alien can only ever be portrayed this way as this really just, like, deadly um, deadly predator who, yeah, you just never know exactly what it's going to do next. So I think that just no other game has come along like this. Like, even the first person, you know, the first person resis and stuff, like, maybe feel like they have some DNA from this, but this is still very specific as a kind of offering, mm. like a licensed game, you know, approached in this way. It's like... Anything but the lowest common denominator that you would get with some of the other Alien titles that have come along over the years. Thoughts, Matthew?
1: Mm. Yeah, no, I'm yeah, brilliantly put. Um, you know, I I did replay a chunk of this for this episode. Definitely considering putting it in. I, I think it is a a horror masterpiece, but it's almost so effective. I I I do wonder, like, do I actually take much pleasure from it? Right. Because I find it such hard work. You know, if I'm too scared of it. You know, even in the opening sections you know where there isn't really an alien it's it's just a very intense like sense of doom and once the thing turns up it's genuinely very frightening um i think the thing that amazes me most about this is that so many like horror games and horror films like trade on the potential of a thing and like once you've introduced that thing you know once it starts actually killing you it it almost like begins to naturally deflate as a threat I think with every death in a survival horror game, the threat becomes a little bit and more annoying than it is scary. Right. I think the art here is how they get around that by like evolving the nature of it or knowing when to like take the foot off the gas and like take a little bit of a break from the alien and give you a different kind of threat or a different kind of stealth experience. They use the alien masterfully, I think is, is is the trick of this one and it's very, very hard to think of another horror game where the villain sort of retains the potency throughout that's like a really singular thing and you know obviously all that's besides the just the the, the incredible fan service of the thing and it's just it's unreal how good this looks and i was playing on xbox where it's got the frame rate boost as well and it's mm. it just
0: looks really really nice yeah i only ever played this on pc and it just had that 60 fps from the start right it just, right it made, it made a huge difference i think um yeah just like a lot of like it's weird it's sort of it's not sort of technically spectacular but there's something about the filtering of like objects and the color palette that's just really beautiful about this game um yeah and then like obviously the kind of like VHSy kind of interface to a lot of the electronics and stuff that enhances your connection with that world um yeah just really really beautifully done um yeah what what a one-off this is and it is a one-off they never made a sequel so Yep, um remains a classic, available pretty widely still. Um DLCs are kind of challenge Roomy, but they're kind of cool too. They kind of get you to experience the alien in different ways. But truthfully, there's so much game in the base game that you'll um you'll definitely feel like you probably feel like you've had your feel by the end of it. You've seen so much of that creature and what they can do with it. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, a worthy number one, Matthew. So let's fire through some honorable mentions very quickly, Matthew. One of mine here is um Transistor. A game from um, Super Giant that had a talking sword in it, set in this kind of slightly cyberpunky world. I thought that was pretty cool, but. Um, probably not more so than like Hades which is like the ultimate super giant game I guess what's one of mm. yours Matthew? Uh, shovel Knight. Nice So yeah that was like a huge deal at the time wasn't it?
1: One of the better examples of going back to that 8-bit style but it's it's like not 8-bit games as they were it's as you remember them it's you know very like modern tech behind it just a lot of very satisfying interactions I love love the what they did with the shovel like digging stuff up is fun but also pogoing around on the stick and and also just like one of the best supported games in terms of its tail like the stuff they added to it and the kind of the riffs on it um you know I, I don't have i don't go back to that era of games a lot but i thought this was a great example
0: of it Yep, that's a good one uh i think that yeah i should play that at some point i uh, did think it was a very beautiful looking riff on that on that era Um, i suppose i will put destiny here i think destiny was objectively a good shooter it just wasn't like a great campaign or the multiplayer didn't really speak to me Uh, when the raid came along i think i did one of the raids in um, before taken king came out but otherwise it didn't destiny left me slightly cold while other people were like this is my life now and i just didn't quite get it as uh, previously discussed um chuck another one in here matthew so um this is like a recent discovery for me but uh, I was hugely into Sunset Overdrive. Um the only oh, reason yeah. I didn't put it here is that it was I, it maybe didn't reflect my 2014 playing experience because I've been playing it so recently so I didn't want it to right. like blot out the other games I did want to discuss but like yeah. I I do like it and it's probably is a worthy top 10 pick. What's uh, another one of yours Matthew? Uh
1: Sherlock Holmes Crimes and Punishments. Um obviously one of Andy Kelly's picks for top detective games when we did a detective games episode. I think it's the, the actual like writing and dialogue's a little bit blurred in this game but i think the the attempts to capture Sherlock Holmes sort of mental processes and the way you can kind of hardwire synapses together in his brain to create different outcomes is genuinely really compelling it's a, it's a really good like 6 out of 10 and if you can get
0: it for like you know a 10 or something well worth a go okay cool yeah i've only got one i've only got one more one to throw in there matthew um okay which is assassin's creed unity oh okay yeah just going play i played it recently i think i played it for the xbox XL episode we did backwards compatibility yeah. where they've given it a really nice facelift this is a game that's in pretty good state these days of the the classic assassin's creed template there's so much lavish production design production value, sorry in the um how that world is brought to life that you just kind of need to see i think if you wrote this game Ooh. off as being a bit too glitchy at the time which i would understand but uh yeah that xbox one version is the way to play it imo Ooh. um any more, Matthew? A
1: couple more quick ones. Uh, Tomodachi Life, which was the weird sort of Animal Crossing-like, also from Nintendo for 3DS, where you basically made your me and it moved into a block of other me's and you could sort of socialise with other characters. The big hook of this was it had like quite funny text-to-speech, so all the characters were voiced in this sort of Microsoft Sam kind of thing you could make them sing weird little songs as an actual game there's there's not a lot to it it's very throwaway but the the humor of making your me say like rude things or you know, making a me to sing, like, a rude song about someone in the office or something was, like, always big lols. All the me's in it, they sort of spoke like this. They sort of went, hello, I am in Tomodachi life. <laughs> and that's just really drilled into my brain, the the unique sound of that game. And finally, uh, I think we had the first episode of Tales from the Borderlands this year, um, mm. which remains, like, the only actually funny Borderlands product a Telltale game. This was the year they made so many of these fucking things. There was also the Game of Thrones one and the Batman this year or the year later. Anyway, loads of them. us from the Borderlands. Really, really good heist story told across five episodes. Some genuinely very funny moments. Absolutely brilliant use of licensed music for the credence sequences. I thought I was going to hate this. Like, just the story from Borderlands? Yikes. Turns out fantastic. Uh, uh, what a pleasant surprise. Did, like, a sequel to this come out? is it like available last year yeah but it's it's meant to be shit apparently
0: oh that's tough that's a shame um yeah yeah okay uh, i know wolf among us was this year too but i never never quite cracked that one unfortunately oh, so, good
1: well. world but the game just the last three episodes of it were if you uh, ask okay. me
0: interesting well then we're done matthew another fucking epic i remember now why we only do these episodes every every few months they're like uh, <laughs> quite an <laughs> undertaking aren't they they um, are but, but hopefully hope- informative and interesting Yeah, I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. Um, Matthew, where can people find you on social media? Mr. Basil underscore pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. As mentioned, if you want to get two additional podcasts from us a month and support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash backpagepod. You can also email us at backpagegames at gmail.com. If you want to leave us a review on the platform of your choice, that would be most welcome too. And uh, yeah, next week is, I think, a what we've been playing, Matthew. So let's get out of here. Let's do it. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.